When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Benjamin sent me homework last night to read one of your articles, and I may actually do a podcast based on oh. the article at some point. Oh, so. Which one was that? Which one is it, Benjamin? It's your five uh, five flaws with liberal philosophy. Oh, the false assumptions. Yeah. Yes, the five false assumptions. I think that's a, a very important uh, piece, honestly. Um, so, yeah. I'm working on that. a follow-up to that, actually, because I've... Uh, identified at least four more false assumptions in liberalism um which unfortunately <laughs> is one of the it's one of the problems with it is just it's kind of irreconcilable for the philosophy and i'm not happy to say that you know right yeah i mean i think about these things a lot because this was mm-hmm. um philosophy that was hashed out over 200 years ago yeah. when I mean, we get in a lot of trouble for saying this because there's a lot of old wisdom and things, but frankly, people didn't know what the hell was going on. Um, And liberalism falls out of the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment is this sprawling, messy kind of quest of discovery and, you know, the scientific – the dawning of the scientific revolution is kind of beginning, but science doesn't mature until the early 20th century, uh, certainly until at least electromagnetism is is tamed, um, which is early 20th century. Quantum mechanics throws a wrench in, into the whole thing later, but um, you have this kind of unfolding of ideas where people are are making sort of stabs in the dark, and there's this kind of I don't know, almost miasma of of deep philosophical thought mixed in with literal mysticism, mixed in with religion and trying to cut apart from these things all at once where people, again, I mean, like, you know, with the five false assumptions essay that you wrote, you talk again and again about this root of this kind of being in this image of the state of nature, mm. which is, of course, just crap. No such thing ever existed. No such, no such thing applies whatsoever. Again, if you mentioned a bunch of them admit that it's uh, probably not true as well, Um, right? Which is even funnier. Yeah, why base anything on something that you probably think is not true? Why do that? Um, Because humans. I mean, what are you going to do? Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's just fantastic um, to to look at this because my opinion, and maybe you agree with me, and maybe you don't agree with me. And maybe you hope I'm right, is that there is, if we might lift language from Karl Marx just for the hell of it, that there is a rational kernel in this mystical shell that can be pulled out and updated for the 21st century. Um, I think that these assumptions poke at something true and valuable. I know that you have identified yourself and I identify myself as classically liberal in many regards. I don't know if that still holds for you for sure, but... Um, with your your desire not for those those things not to be the case or the, the, yeah. that um I feel I, like I guess I would they're... call myself a post liberal at this point. It's not not that I don't owe anything to the legacy of liberalism. Um mm-hmm. I 
feel that it's time to figure out what was true and what was not and then what to keep and what to lose uh so right. yeah post so in that sense i don't know that our project is wholly different except that what i would rather do is put the the truth of those those um insights that are based on incorrect assumptions on firmer ground and update them for the 21st century and the uh, circumstances we find ourselves in that, that's something we can definitely discuss yeah. definitely something we can discuss where would um, one begin because both of you guys have attacked very thoroughly in your own ways progressivism and then moving on to uh, as both of you i've watched you guys uh develop your critiques you go deeper and deeper and deeper and so where, where do we start after if we just say okay we know that something's wrong uh society's fragmenting at the same time power is congealing in a way that doesn't seem to be good um and we want to have some sort of philosophy or some sort of philosophical grounding from which to proceed towards organizing society so I'm seeing the situation that we're in, and then you and I spoke about this, I think, after we ended the stream last time, Benjamin, uh, where we talked about the idea of the, what we're dealing with, whether we call it communism or neo-communism or Marxism or this kind of legacy of Marxism or woke or the kind of weird fascist thing that they built at the World Economic Forum in the United Nations out of all of this um, and are applying it to us. I called it a parasite, a liberal parasite. And I think that a lot of the post-liberal movement thinks that this is the culmination of liberalism whereas i think it is a parasite that has taken that it's latched onto the side of liberal uh, of liberal philosophy and and, and societal organization and is basically taking control of the ship it's like that beetle that went viral the other day with the parasites it has no body left it's just the out the outer carapace of the beetle walking around literally like a janky beetle but there's no bot like the, the the thing's not even just dead. It doesn't even have a body anymore. It's been eaten literally apart from the inside. And uh, I feel like that we have a, a liberal a parasite on liberalism rather than a uh, coming to fruit of what liberalism was always intended or, or likely to go to. And so when I think about that, to switch metaphors, which I know is always a dangerous thing to do, to maybe more of like a garden uh, when does your garden get taken over by weeds is, is, well, it doesn't get taken over by weeds when the plant life, for example, is healthy and well tended. Um, and so that's kind of, in my opinion, getting this basic philosophy, right? If we, we want to, we want to get our, our basic substrate to where it, it, it excludes the possibility of the parasite being able to latch on. But the problem is the parasites already latched on its fangs are deep deep inside it's already drained most of the blood out of society it's drinking what it can now very quickly uh, of what's left and so we actually also have to kill the parasite so what i see is we've got this weird techno you know transhumanist future awful thing happening being foisted on us by the exploitation of being able to get around the kind of liberal government principles by using the corporate sector to circumvent most of the protections that are supposed to be there. So we get this kind of monstrosity that has to be destroyed. I, I think that every sane person who wants a, who wants freedom in the, in, in the future, whether we're liberal, conservative, post-liberal, whatever has to just focus on destroying that, which includes the woke ideology 
but we also have to figure out how to get this fundamental philosophical substrate right in order to um make sure that we don't easily get reinfected or in fact just like i hear a lot about like creating parallel structures parallel economy parallel this parallel that i think that that's interesting and a bit uh, ambitious and and in a kind of fake way but at the same time how do you prevent such a thing from being immediately co-opted by the parasite and that becomes the question. Like I'm looking at this school choice movement thing happening in the United States. And I'm just like, you guys have done literally zero of the groundwork. This whole thing is going to be a woke disaster in three years. The whole thing. Hmm. Cause you've done none of the groundwork to prevent your alternative structure from getting taken over from the inside. This is a mistake. The you know reactionaries have made throughout the world. The integralist movement in South America made this, they created all these powerful structures. They got their little helicopters. They got rid of the communists. Everybody clapped. And now look at South America. The whole place is going communist full blast and using the apparatuses that they created in order to oppress people. Um, it doesn't work. We, so we have to, we, we have, it's, it's not just making a parallel, but we have to also get the, philo the philosophy, right. And it has to be the philosophy updated in terms of what we've learned. So these five false assumptions or the nine, I guess now that Carl's identified of liberalism have to be addressed. Those, those problems have to be identified and addressed. The philosophy has to be clarified and updated. We have to figure out what liberalism actually was intending to achieve therefore clear it up and then at the same time destroy this beast that's i mean i use that in in the biblical sense um this beast that's consuming freedom and humanity uh, not even civilization screw civilization it's it's consuming humanity and it has to be has to be stopped so these are the things that i see as our, our big project but we've got to also get the philosophy right the cultural renewal underneath the cause of whatever human liberty looks like in the 21st century has to speak into not just what we've learned that shows these nine errors but what we also know and what we're dealing with the tech sector the idea of a kind of literal ethereal world that we semi live in through the internet um space and time are actually different and we don't need the queer theorists with their queer space and time being the only people speaking into that are you suggesting uh, that we example. create a state of nature thought experiment for the internet a state of virtuality yeah no absolutely not <laughs> no. absolutely not carl what, what what's your response to that or where would you like to focus on I think I actually do disagree with James on this. Sorry, James. I hate, hate, hate to you don't have to be, be apologetic to, to disagree um, with me. No, Look, no, no. I've got my the... anti-science aggression mug here for this. I'm ready. Oh, good. Yes, because yeah, I'm the, the leading anti-science activist. Um, <laughs> I think this probably was um, an inherent aspect of liberalism, because, and it seems to be the the Enlightenment itself. Uh, is a, this, uh, a movement dedicated to the supremacy of reason. Uh, and that seems like a rational thing to have in the 17th century when everyone is incredibly prejudiced, uh, things are bad, people are suffering all the time, and the human condition is far worse than what we have now. But the thing is, I've come to the conclusion that ideas are a product of a time and place. They don't just exist in the ether to be accessed at any point. Uh, they are a product of the human experience. And we are living in a very different world now after 300 years of the supremacy of reason. And 
so much good has been done that we are forgetting we have forgotten what good can be done through ways of life that are not based on reason because in fact much of our daily life is not really based in reason most of it is based in habit in custom in prejudice and i don't mean prejudice in a in in the in the in the way that the left would use it to describe bigotry but the accrued wisdom of habits is really what we mean by prejudice there we we don't necessarily know like for example i'm not vaccinated i don't know anything about vaccines but i thought i would just be prudent on this and not uh, not jump like everyone else and lo and behold i'm not worried about having a random heart attack uh it wasn't because i had any special knowledge or wisdom or insight it was because long long experience has taught me that when everyone is moving in one direction and you're not allowed to criticize or challenge that there's something there's something you need to know about this uh, and that wasn't a product of reason that was a product of my prejudice um and so it's not that these things aren't valuable it's not that they don't contain knowledge and wisdom and it's not that they aren't helpful the problem is that prior to the enlightenment that was the dominant paradigm and it was oppressive and it was maintaining social orders that people understood uh, rightly under understood to be intolerable and should have changed and it's good that they did but i think that the pendulum has swung too far now and it's normal and natural for people who are committed to reason to stigmatize things like prejudices things like uh, unthinking habits biases um it's normal for them to do that because that's what's in the way of them achieving what they're trying to attain but the problem i think that lies at the very root of the enlightenment itself is it can't really stop itself from the way it is constituted in its origins from admitting that the ultimate goal of the enlightenment is to free the will from the body because ultimately it is the physical necessity of being a human being that will forever be inhibiting what the will is and there's a, a massive conversation to go into about the um the kind of circular nature of this as well but I, i'll try and sidestep that just to save time um the we we see this as james points out very very honestly this is one of this was probably i think one of the most one of those insights james where i was watching one of your podcasts and it just clicked for me you described them as a gnostic cult and i was I was, you know, that is exactly right. Because I read about Gnosticism uh, when I was studying the Cathars, and it, I'd never made the connection before, and you were spot on. But that's exactly the problem, isn't it? It's the stigmatization of the material world that is the issue. And then I watched a, a podcast that Michael Knowles did with a with a a, a science based uh, medical medical student, and uh, and he just drilled it down at the end to her saying, "Well, he, he was like, well, this is your body, then what's you?" And she's like, "Well, it's my soul." So, oh my god okay so now we have arrived at the gnostic position um where the soul precedes the body now i'm i'm an atheist so i don't believe that at all i believe that the mind is a product of the body and in fact the mind is not separate from the body it is a part of the body and so i think this is where we can properly begin to see where the enlightenment actually has this fundamental flaw in it and how we can begin uh, like i said to james just before we started i consider myself these days sort of a post-liberal um my instincts are of course as they've always been and i'm still very classically liberal in what i would choose for myself um but as i noted in those articles there are false assumptions that liberalism is built on and if you are forced to build a 
an intellectual foundation that is consistent and accurate to reality, which not everyone is. I mean, you could have a mythological foundation, which lots of people do. And that's not necessarily bad either. That's another conversation. Then we have to ascertain what the real situation was as and as, as you point out james they were doing their best 300 years ago but of course there's just so much more that we know now thanks to the use of reason uh so it, the the core thing for me is to actually stitch back together reason and our physical bodies this is something that i think actually needs to happen and, and tradition too well that, that's that's the point Almost everything physical you do is kind of a tradition. It's kind of part of a tradition. Like you get up every morning and you get your breakfast and you don't think, well, you can have a breakfast. You just, what do I feel like? And, you know, on a Thursday, you might feel like a fry up or something. I don't know, you know, but you make your breakfast. You don't really think about it. It's just something you do. And this is the habitual patterns of life. This is most of what we do. And it's okay that that is unreasoned it's okay that most of our life is actually kind of impulsive as jonathan Haidt's work's gone through and we've known as far back as hume actually most of what we do isn't rationalized most of what we do is post hoc rationalization for what we've just done because habitually we've always done it um and so the the remarriage of these things is an important thing but what i think that does is actually to destroy the concept of ideology itself and that's a problem for ideologists. And ideologists are mostly, as far as I can tell, a product of the Enlightenment. Uh, I think you could make an argument that Islam is a form of political ideology that came obviously long before. But what do you mean by ideology? Part, like a, a ruling right, an, an, coherent... an ideology. So there, there, there are lots of definitions of ideology, and no one seems to be able to nail them down. Um, but a few that I've been working with, one of them comes from critical race theory, actually, which is a set of contested ideas. Uh, and a second one is from Oakeshott, where it's the distillation and abstraction of a political tradition that is used in order to justify the seizure of power. And actually, I think that one combined with the other one, but that one is the most accurate because an ideology is, is essentially programming code for political NPCs, for midwits, to tell them, oh, no, th if you do this, this, and this, you should get X or Y result. And now, I mean, we know that this just generally isn't true for most ideologies because the world is horrifically complex. Uh, but it is the retreat out of, or I should say the advance out of uh, this scholarly place into a more real place where we're approaching the sort of more Edmund Burkean position of, yes, I'm a Whig, yes, I'm all these things. But I also think the traditions are important. Um, to, to kind of marry these things back together, I think, is actually the job of post-liberals, because we don't want to lose the good things that liberals, liberalism provided to us, but we also don't want those things weaponized against us. And when you're existing purely in the world of theory, Actually, that's entirely possible, as James and I have both spent a lot of time explaining through critical race theory. It's actually an attack on the liberal view of civil rights that birthed critical race theory and has allowed it to prosper because the parasite itself knows how we work. And so it can do these things. Um, and so we want to retain the good things that we achieved without opening the door to radical extremism like the critical race uh critical race theorists 
And we also want to rehabilitate the authentically human dimensions of being a human. Because one of the problems of reason is that we're looking at AI at the moment saying, okay, well, it's only a matter of time until this is effectively a human, as far as we can tell, because it's capable of reason. But I think that's the wrong way of looking at it, because the constituency then, if it's a rational being, well, a lot of things could end up being rational, but only one type of thing is a human. And that's the thing I think we need to be concerned about, because we are all humans, and the human experience is very rich and very complicated, and I think that we need to bring these things back together. And that means we need to, I think, have a more sentimental view of ourselves, each other, and the sort of connective tissue between each people, each person, that is the relationship that they have with one another, with the place around them, with their own civilization, with their their country, the, any metaphysic that they happen to hold. That, that, I think, is what needs to really be thought about, um, rather than trying to continue on the path of ideology uh, in order to try and defeat the woke virus. I mean, I agree it needs to be defeated, but I think actually it's kind of a more advanced technology in that regard. And so it'd be like trying to win the American Civil War with bows and arrows rather than rifles. Uh, I, I don't think you can do it. Um, so I'll leave that but, there. But a sentimental connection to each other can just as easily slip into a ideology or a, a a formula for acquiring political will which is not necessarily bad because we need to have some sort of political will to you know protect society <clears throat> and some sort of unification within that but you see from the left or at least from the um the elite that any sort of disturbance of a american nationalism freaks them out or they continually prop it up as controlled opposition. They, they, Sorry, any just, to, just to make a point there. Um, the problem with an ideology is, is, de is defined a priori from a position that is not interested in what the world is like. And so it describes what it wants in an idealistic way and then tries to format the world to fit that. Um, the difference between that and this sentimental view of politics would be to take things as they are and try and imagine a slightly better future rather than reformat the entire world. So you are localizing the issue that you're trying to change rather than universalizing it, which is, I think, the inherent problem with ideologists. You, because you're starting in the realm of the abstract and then coming into the real rather than coming into the real and then trying to look slightly ahead. Um, it, it works in different directions. So um, on the topic of ideology, just to kind of put it out there, and maybe this will help you since you're working on a project with it, Carl. Um, I don't know if you've ever read, you mentioned critical race theory. I don't know if you've ever read this book called, um, what's it called? Uh, from from uh, Class to Race by Charles Mills. Mm -hmm. And so the I first chapter, I, I hesitated to read this thing forever, and I finally sucked it up and read it. And the first chapter actually is Charles Mills, who's a very, he recently died like last year or something or the year before. Uh, he's, he's a very famous, I've been told I'm not allowed to call him a critical race theorist because he's a critical philosopher of race and we can all go off in our leftist circles and jerk around or whatever we do in them. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, the first chapter, he basically lays out literally a claim that everybody who's a Marxist ever misunderstood Marx about ideology. And 
he gives the most cogent explanation of what it is that I think I've ever read. It's one of the most valuable chapters I've ever read in my life, I think. Um, and what he mostly is doing is taking apart other Marxists and saying how inadequate they are, which is for me just, you know, great. But um, the definition kind of boils down to that it's the it, it is the mythology that the ruling class kind of semi-organically, but sometimes deliberately weaves in order to justify, maintain, and entrench its own power. And so it, it is a political mythology. And the reason I think that we see this rising within the Enlightenment is not specifically because of something to do with the Enlightenment, although perhaps I'm open to the, to the, the contention, to, to, the, to the hypothesis. What I see happening in this regard is that the when you said that it clicked with you with the Gnosticism, I think that what we saw is that the kind of Gnostic architects that were kind of operating in parallel, and I not even in parallel, literally mixed in. I said miasma earlier, and I really mean it. There was no real distinction between mystics and scientists and philosophers and even theologians sort of throughout Europe in the late Middle Ages, early modern period. It just, there just wasn't. Francis Bacon, which one was he? All of them. Mm. So what are you going to do? You know, um, Newton, several of them at once. You go to the, you yeah. know, the, the Swabian pietist theologians from which Hegel and Marx derive several at once. What do you, I mean, it's just mixed together. These, this is the problem with thinking from three, 400 years ago is we hadn't clarified some of these things. And so what I, what I see there is that the Gnostic project got moved into politics, sociology, and economics very deliberately. And the reason I actually say that Hegel is the one who codified this, I don't think it's his doing. We might blame Kant we could definitely blame Rousseau, who I fear you sound a little bit like um, at, I'm at this very, point. I'm very, very familiar with Rousseau. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> so I, I can explain why I'm not. Uh... I, I, I'm nervous that the project you've outlined tends in the Rousseauian direction um, okay. without some guardrails, at least uh, the sentimentality, the, the mm -hmm. you know, attempt to get back to sensuousness uh, as a meaning, uh, as, a, as a basis for for understanding reality. But I don't disagree with you about the body being the center of, of our experience and the mind. I'm all, you know, I'm also famously an atheist, mm -hmm. aka America's top Christian nationalist. But yes. um, that's my I'm other also a Christian nationalist. Atheist. Oh, really? Well, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we're at the front forefront of this movement that's definitely not a Fed operation in the United States at all, like the most <laughs> obvious one that's ever been created. Like, watching them just jump into it but no what i see yeah, though yeah. is that i see that the mysticism got moved into politics into the realm of politics and i think hegel codified this with the phenomenology of spirit in fact this is sort of the other day believe it or not i tweeted i just spent half my day reading judith butler and it was surprisingly clarifying first of all i shocked myself i don't know if you've had the pleasure i've of read reading. gender trouble yeah well as you know it's a slightly painful book to it's read didn't she win like First place or second place in like worst sentence ever contest or the worst writing ever or something. I don't know, Turns but out, I wouldn't be surprised if she did. I can sit down and read Judith Butler straight through. Like it's not that hard now. Like oh, you found crap, out the, the Judith code? It, well, I just know what the words mean and how they construct sentences. So it's really yeah. not that complicated. Um, I, I read, I had the same thing with, uh, was, uh, with uh, the dialectic of sex. I can't remember the. Oh, yeah, stone. that one. 
Yeah, I, that that was yeah. one of the and, first and, critical uh, theory books I was going to. I tried to read total gibberish. After about four years of studying it, I went back and reread it. I was like, right, I get this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a long time, you know. And Fausto Sterling, that's who we're looking for hmm. uh, on that one, I think. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm reading Judith Butler and it finally clicks with me because she's got this whole thing. I'm kind of like blowing my load too early here talking about this because I want to talk. I want to do my own podcast about this issue. Um, but she's deriving this quote from Foucault, where Foucault, of course, you know, these fucking French guys. So what these postmodernists, what does he do? Well, it's not that the so very with the Gnostic concept, right? It's not that the body is the prison for the soul. It's the soul is the prison for the body. That's Foucault. Mm. That's a literal mm. statement from Foucault. Mm. Judith Butler brings it up repeatedly throughout her writing. It's mentioned in some other the kind of foundational queer texts. So this is an important concept. And of course, you read it and you're like, that makes zero sense whatsoever. How is the soul the prison for the body? And what you realize is that what I'm saying when Hegel codified, what I'm seeing in this transition to modern mysticism or modern Gnosticism, modern era Gnosticism, is, which is, by the way, what Marxism kind of distills and it makes actionable he becomes like the the grand priest of this is how you do modern gnosticism um what hegel codified is that the social constructions are the spirit so the social construction of society around you which you're trying to manipulate by either manipulating the idea or the material conditions the the the, the geist of society is the spirit but that's that. I mean, literally, that's what the word means. Phenomenology disguises. That's what the word means. Hmm. So it's the spirit, and your soul is, as a person, just part of that spirit, which is on the hmm. trajectory of transformation of, of history. And so you are a part of that greater spiritual whole. Your soul, whatever that represents, is therefore your understanding of yourself through the social constructions of reality, and thus the soul which is the social constructions of reality applied to you becomes the prison for your body. So you're born with a weenie and the social constructions of what it means to be a man imprison you because of your body. So your body is imprisoned because of the, and I'm like, Oh shit, that's what she means. That's what mm -hmm. Foucault means. The social constructions become the artifice of the prison of the Gnostic line of thought in the modern going into postmodern era. Mm -hmm. I do like this idea of it being a, a superior technology. Um, to have exploited this phenomenon. But what you're seeing is simultaneously, we always talk about like the enlightenment and then there's the counter enlightenment, right? And of course we have Stephen Hicks, brilliant guy. I don't know if you've ever met him. He's Big fun fan. to be around yeah, actually. Yeah, I've spoken to yeah. him many times. Yeah, I like Stephen quite a lot. And mm -hmm. Stephen's got his wonderful book, what, back from 2005. So we're talking yeah. a while ago, explaining postmodernism, And he's talking about the counter enlightenment. And, um, I, he's he's approvingly interacted with stuff I've said to this, but I haven't spoken with him about it yet. I actually should call him and talk to him. You definitely it. should. It'd be very I think, good. I mean, we've talked many times. I, we actually went to the beach together for like a week. You know, it was kind oh, of fun. Right. But um, we, uh, I, I don't think there was a counter enlightenment. I think there were two. I think there was the religious reaction to the enlightenment. And then there was the romantic reaction to the enlightenment. And I don't think that these two things are perfectly separable 
right? Again, that mixture of enlightenment thought, religious thought, and then mystical thought or Gnostic thought all kind of blended together in this. There was no distillation of these kind of three alchemical ingredients. And um, the romantic reaction, this is where, when I start hearing sentimental and, and uh, bring up Rousseau. Uh, maybe I should have chosen my words more be, carefully. I'll explain yes, it in a minute. It's fine. That's fine. That's fine. And I, I'm not putting you on the spot. I'm just no, 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 no. I, just I reacting as I go. But yeah. the, the romantic reaction is... So if we think of the religious reaction to the Enlightenment as the ability to carve out space for faith against reason, and there's a huge, interesting discussion. I'm about to have a talk I did in December come out today or tomorrow, actually, on this specific thing that I think actually paints a way forward that might tap into something you really like. If we think of the, the religious reaction as carving out against reason space for faith, I think of the romantic reaction as carving out against reason space for mysticism and mythopoesis. And I think that's poison and that's where the parasite lives. And so the space forward for me looks like, how do we get faith and reason? The myth, for me, the magic sauce of the West, Ben Shapiro touches it in his, I forget which book it is. He writes a book like every 15 minutes. Um, you know, he writes at the same speed he talks. And so- um, You're not very far behind him, James. I'm trying to catch up. I'm training. <laughs> I'm training. I got an energy drink in my Hotez Mad Cup over here. I don't have coffee or tea in it. Um, but no, what what he says is that it's it's somehow Athens plus Jerusalem, right? And so, what is that it, emblematically? That's kind of a, a, a an archetype of reason. That's Athens, and an archetype of faith. That's Jerusalem, and and also tradition. The Jewish tradition. I mean. Hanukkah, you eat fried food because 5,000 years ago, they didn't run out of oil one day. Like that's tradition. Like you can't beat tradition to that level. Right. And so the idea of those things coming together to box out mysticism is I think what's made the West so successful, but we've had this weird undercurrent of mysticism and, and, and sometimes just main current. We can't deny that there were Masons involved in the founding of the United States and in the direction of its creation. Well, what do you mean by mysticism? We I mean, these kind of Gnostic, esoteric, and, and hermetic approaches to transforming reality. Um, but but but, it, but it's similar to uh, affecting your will upon reality, like like or or some it, sort that's of right. process. It's, it's of the ability the to will. believe that you can project your will forward into reality and make your will come to be in reality, which is the realm where ideology lives. In fact, it's in a sense what ideology, is, as Carl was describing it, it's what it exists to do that you put your idea out first. And then what you do, ironically almost, is you pretend that's science. You pretend that you've put out the hypothesis and then you check against reality to, to tweak your hypothesis to keep going forward. But in fact, really what you're doing is you're bending circumstances to make your, your hypothesis come true and you never allow it to be falsified. And that's the problem. And I say it's, and I'll let Carl talk and let you guys talk in a second, but just to bring it up, we do have to go back when we start excavating the roots of this. And I brought up Athens, we have to excavate deep because when Plato names Scientia, that's what he's actually talking about anyway. It's these guy has Scientia is broken down into two components. If you go read how he he organized it, you've got a piece de May, which is the higher level reason thinking. And then you have the lower level of you know knowing stuff, understanding how the world works, called dianoia that applies to techne, which is techne is the the idea of gaining technical knowledge to be able to do things in the world. So how why is that relevant? Because how did it get into the this this story that I'm telling? Well, it's not even that mysterious. There's pretty good evidence out there that Hegel just imported that 
architecture from Plato, which is to build a technocracy. That's what, if you read Republic, that's what he's describing is a technocracy. That's the technology to build a technocracy on. The episteme is the higher level reason of the philosopher kings who are going to guide the knowledge to the point of ide- wherever the ideology points that they've thought up. Their philosophy that they thought up a priori from the realm of reason and the forms of how the world should be. Mm-hmm. And then Hegel just imports this shit and puts it in German, calls them vernunft and verstand. And all of a sudden, he has this exact same program. He updates it to um, early modern thinking or kind of late period. It's like the late end of early modern. I don't know what to call that late early modern, Um, because he's talking about if you read philosophy of right, he's talking about organizing a constitutional monarchy. If you actually read it, you're like, wow, that looks like America with a king. And um, like it's a lot of the same stuff. Of course, America preceded Hegel in this. This was like 1821 or something like that. He's writing this down. And so it's like divided powers. It sounds great, but you still have this king and this, you know, how it's in that. How's the king chosen? Well, by the forces of history and the conflict of opposites and, you know, all this nonsense um, that they're always into. But he just imported the the platonic technocracy with the concept of the platonic episteme being the pathway to understand the ideology that guides the technocracy, put it in German, and he actually becomes the guy who outlines the plan that Marx picks up and says, actually, yeah, but flip it over so that we get to be on top as the grubs that don't do anything and have an entitlement complex and hate everybody and don't take baths and stuff. Let's take the program and flip it over so we win. But other than that, yes. And the thing that's keeping this thing, this pyramid, the platonic pyramid of society upright is the mythology called ideology that's understood in terms of they're in German, they're vernunft, the reason, as it gets translated, that guides the the ideological program. And so what did, not to, again, put Carl on the spot, because I actually like him, but when no, he no, says, you know, this is the end of ideology, that's what Marx said he was building, was the end of ideology. Yeah. But really what he was, of course, doing was he was forwarding his own ideology. So I'm not saying this is what Carl's doing, just so everybody's clear. I'm saying that becomes a pitfall Hmm. of programs going forward that we must be very cautious about. And so for me, I define liberalism and the Enlightenment very differently. I don't actually, like I look back at these philosophers, these false assumptions, and I think, aren't they adorable? That's great. But that what I'm, I'm trying to find the essence under it. And I think the hmm. essence under the liberal project is that none of us is God. That's it. It's none of us has the power. None of us can become God. And that's retaining that human thing you were speaking of. Mm. It also refutes the World Economic Forum literally explicitly with Homo Deus coming from God man, coming from uh, Harari, him openly mm. saying, they are going to become gods and little skinny. The, uh, the, the arrogance of these people. Honestly. Look at him. He's Gollum. He just hasn't turned yeah. ugly yet. Like yeah. he literally, he's Gollum. And so, you know, he's got the ring. He's my precious. And he, yeah. ha- humans are hackable animals. Um, th- these people, but it's that we are not God. And so how do we determine questions of things like political authority? Who gets it? Well, the <clears throat> liberal answer, in my opinion, is, well, nobody. Nobody deserves yeah. it. So now we come up with a scheme to lend it to people with the consent of the people being governed, et cetera, divided powers and all this. So I, I, I keep coming back to this and like Christians tend to get pissed at me because I'm like, to stealing their Christian heritage of the nation or whatever, but I actually think the fundamental assumption of this kind of broadly successful liberal project is 
you're not God and you don't get to be God. And in fact, that's true for everybody. So you end up getting, you know, kind of a, we don't have obvious like physical equality. Like some people are better at stuff, et cetera, or some people are bigger. Some people are stronger. Some people are stupid. Some people are whatever. We don't have that, but we, in terms of what it means to have fundamental human dignity, there's a, there's a fundamental basis of equality because only God in some sense has the authority to judge what somebody's human worth is. And since it's not, it doesn't matter if God exists or not. All you have to say is none of us is that. So who has the authority? And so what the whole liberal project does is it open for me is to open the door to start trying to figure out how do we solve actual practical political problems under the assumption that none of us gets to play God over anybody else. And it's not more complicated than that. Uh, everything else is, is details that, that flow downstream from this. Um, assumptions like the blank slate and things are just frankly idiotic. Um, good try, John Locke, which thank you so much for your project, especially for your articulation of the necessity of life, liberty, and property as inalienable rights to, to secure liberty. Um, but the blank slate, I mean, in state of nature, like, come on, guys. You can't blame uh, him for his time, though. You know, you can understand. I can blame him for the state that. of nature thing. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. He he actually seems to have believed it as well. Yeah, um, that's so, that's that's literally silly. Yeah, it is. And the, the, there's so much in John Locke that is, in one way, genius, and in the other way, obviously crackpot. And I, it does make me wonder. But um, how old was he when he was writing this stuff? Because we often forget that a lot of these guys were like in their twenties. Yeah. Yeah, I would have to go back and check. I know he had yeah. to go into exile after writing, and he had to write it anonymously because what he was saying he knew was insanely radical. Um, and this, this is actually one of the uh, one of the sticks I used to beat the reactionaries. Now, where they're like, "Well, this is this is our version," and it's like, "No, you are sitting in your house that you own, and you're not worried about the state kicking down the door with you openly espousing." counter radical views uh and so actually we can say that liberalism has done good things and there are fruits of it that we'd like to harvest and keep man uh, i so this so is, many of these guys that are telling me that they're ready for the war and that yeah, they yeah. practiced on uh, call of duty and yeah like yeah. they're not gonna I, go to war they're gonna post memes to inflame it and i'm like bro yeah i i bro. i have spoken to the i went to a conference with them uh, last year and i i'm gonna go this year as well because a lot of them are nice people but just a bit online and and so essentially my first explanation was that we're not we're not revolutionaries we're not gonna we're not gonna take up arms don't be silly you know none of you are and that's fine you don't have to be we can win this in other ways because in in one sense they have something that is true right they have a good grasp on like the human the genuinely sentimental artistic human the aesthetic side of what it means to be a human what what makes life worth living right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's what i think actually the enlightenment kind of doesn't have and this is what we need to start stitching back together because this i agree with by the way great uh, in fact i think it's it. a i think it's yeah. a feature not a bug but it leaves a massive hole that's a problem well i i i, I it's not just aesthetic I, it's familial it, it, it's it's yeah. the family well, if we say aesthetic is in come the having its origins in the sentiments right the the what the what an aesthetic experience is not something that's outside the world it's actually something that's within us and it is playing on our sentiments the environment plays on our sentiments in order to make us feel in a particular way and have certain kinds of experiences and so 
the human experience is mostly aesthetic in that way. And so this this is where I feel actually we can say it's kind of the fault of the Enlightenment. Um, but when I say that, I'm not saying, right, we need to jettison that, because that's obviously irrational and silly, uh, because so much good stuff came out of the Enlightenment. We don't want to jettison the good things, but we also don't want to be committed to the obvious absurdities. And James makes a good point there. The it is important, and I, 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 I swear to God, like it makes me laugh so hard that it's two atheists saying, "Look, we need God." Okay, uh, <laughs> we need we need to have that spot filled because at the moment, look at the the transhuman and trans agenda is. I am God and I will remake my body in my own image, right? It's like, no, you're not. You're you're actually someone with a mental illness. Okay. Right. I'm not trying and to that's mean. literally the hermetic thing, right? Yes. It actually says that the point, you know, like the corpus hermeticum, like the poimandris says that the point is to remember that you're God and then to become God. Yeah. And ex exactly. And so we we need to we need to acknowledge that actually the problem with reason alone is that it thinks, of course, in it processes the world in abstractions and it, it categorizes the world. And that's actually the opposite of, I think, how the aesthetic world exists. And so we need to find a way of reconciling these things because, so look, picking up on your point on Rousseau, I, now that after you said it, I thought, oh, how did he get to that? But I kind of see how what I said could lead you to that point, but it's actually the opposite of where I'm trying to go with this because, so one of the, one of the good things about liberalism is its individuality individualism it is a good thing to treat a person as some a, a cause in and of themselves and as something that is perfect in, not not perfect sorry uh, worthy sacred. and unique right so yes yeah, sacred yeah sacred is the right word now the problem with liberalism is that it can treat every person as something however the problem it has is the categorization uh, the essentially it's the the epistemology and ontology of it where it has to reduce each human being to the universal shared characteristics and so actually you're kind of reducing all of those differences the the human qualities the the the, the detritus of tradition that builds up in people for example my accent is one example it's not a universal accent it's an english accent and so we'd have to subtract that in our analysis of how the three of us are all human and so we we have to slowly whittle away those things that actually make us uniquely us in order to get to the universal man, which again is another false assumption of liberalism. There never was one in order to say, right now I have a conception of every individual human person. Cause of course a universal thing is also an individual thing. So it means everyone. Um, and that's actually, I think the wrong way to go about it because we do want to be concerned with the individual, but we don't want to reduce the individual to a mere uh, fungible item that is, something that could be produced in an assembly line. Just you mean something just... like where we would make a new kind of style of art where we put nobody's face, but just maybe what well, color exactly. they are. Look, yeah. think, think of the, uh, <laughs> the the representation of signs of the cr crosswalk signs and things like that. It's a universal human shape, you know, so you know it's meant to represent a human, but no particular human. And that's th th where I think the problem of not just uh, Rousseau, but like Rousseau most embodies this problem, uh, I think, where it's it's a generic universalized human that has no commitments other than to the ideology and the state that propagates the ideology. I find myself not having better language to use when I say, actually, I think the reverse is necessary and we should have a more mythological view of people. So essentially, 
if we and, and I'm trying to take an aesthetic foundation to explain what I'm trying to get across here. Um, so you you have to figure, and I I've not read anyone who's been able to articulate what I'm trying to articulate. So if if this comes across as clumsy, please forgive me. Um, but essentially, um, we need to be able to frame ourselves as the protagonists in a story, because every single person, in a way, is a protagonist in a story. And the important thing about a protagonist in a story is not that they are a universal human. It's actually that they are a unique human, and they're an irreplaceable human. As in, you can't have Lord of the Rings without Aragorn, Gandalf, Gimli, Frodo, and Sam. You Not can't more. just replace one of those people, yeah. right? They are they are unique, and they will always be unique. And it's the relationships that they have with the people around them, and the the events as going forward, and the moral, the overarching moral teleology of the thing that makes it what it is in a kind of holistic way. And so these people don't just exist; they belong in this thing. And actually, that. History, before the Enlightenment and even afterwards, I suppose. Um, that's how people kind of viewed the world. That was the point of these stories. That was the point of telling the Iliad. That was the point of reciting the Iliad in ancient Greece. That was the the characters are a unique and necessary component of the story in the same way that you and the people you love are a unique and necessary component in your story personally. And so now we've got away from the idea of categorization. We don't have to interchange anything. We don't need a universal human Everyone is their own story. And actually, this gives us a much more human dimension, because now we don't have to whittle away all of those differences. Actually, the differences can be enriched and, and brought out and fully understood. And suddenly you find yourself being more empathetic to that person because of their characteristics rather than to abstract groups, or the, the oppressed or whoever it is. Because an individual, you can say, look, I can see the suffering. I can empathize. I, if you know, you can put yourself in their shoes. And this is, I think, a better way of conceiving of these things, and also allows us to bring across the set of virtues that the Enlightenment identified, and say, well, these are goods for the individual. They're goods for the public. They're goods in general. We don't need to be committed to false rationalistic foundations, and we can hopefully bring these things together. And create a world that actually we like living in, where we don't hate each other for arbitrary reasons, and the only people that we would hate, hate are people who have actually physically wronged us, you know. And even then, you know, this is where Christianity comes into it. Is, let's talk about forgiveness and reconciliation, justice. Um, but they, what, what do you think of that? No, I, I actually think that this. There, I think I might be able to give you something that, to to chew on that might help you um, mm. think about what you're thinking about. I don't disagree um, with this conception and uh, in, in the fact that this is how humans understand ourselves and each other in relationship to each other, and that um, part of the problem is that in the search for universal man in the realm of differences like i made the interjection a moment ago about the interchangeable avatars of race gender mm -hmm. identity etc that is so characteristic of we'll call it diversity art which is yeah. a foam a form of postmodern soviet realism or socialist realism yeah. i would actually say it's socialist hyper realism if we're going to just corporatist get into it. yeah 
Well, I mean, it is, it's very good for corporatist uh, marketing purposes and propaganda as well, but it's, it's a form of socialist hyper-realism, this art form where everybody has no face, but you can tell what color their, their hair and clothing tell you what gender they probably are. So they become avatars of identity. But what this is, this is the search for um, identity and class, right? And so the other side of the coin, and I'll come back to the, the kind of storytelling thing in a moment because i think that's actually huge and i think you are banging on a very important door nothing to take away from that but it's something to add to it mm-hmm. uh, but this um other side of the universal man coin is the individual and there are some this is a fruit of the enlightenment that we are thinking of each other or as each person as, as the individual there's this weird tension and you know we dragged it out mm-hmm. in cynical theories and talked about it that um kind of if you think of it that liberalism is pointing toward the concept that there is something universal about mankind that makes us in a sense sacred but at the same time we are at the end of the day each individuals and we can't forget that so we don't want to lose the fact that that is a fruit of enlightenment thinking we're not just you know peons under this lord or serfs under that we're not just members of this nation or members of this church or this diocese or whatever else um we don't think of ourselves necessarily just in terms of whatever class we've been assigned or caste depending on how thoroughly Gnostic and monistic the circumstances are, there is a fundamental individual at the bottom of, of the pile. And so that weird tension is, is key, I think, to enlightenment thinking. But what I was going to point at, I don't know if you, not that I'm a giant fan of Daniel Kahneman by any means, but I think there's something interesting. Actually, I don't like his expression of it as well as I like um, Joshua Green's. There's these two books. Daniel Kahneman's very famous, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow or something, or Thinking Fast and Slow. One I've the heard other. of the book. I've never read it, though. Yeah. And so J- Joshua Green has a book called Moral Tribes, and they both present the same idea. Although it's not the it's the point of Kahneman's book. It's not the point of Green's book. But the idea is that there are basically two modes of human thought. One is we could call thinking fast when one is thinking slow. Uh, Green gives a much, I think, more graspable metaphor for it, which is a camera on automatic settings versus manual settings. A camera on automatic settings, you pick it up, you take your picture, comes out good, never great, right? Or great by accident sometimes. However, you're sitting there twiddling the, the lens and on manual mode, and you can get it perfect. You can get the you can get the the, the framing, the lighting, the lens, the, the whatever. I, I'm the focus. I'm looking for words, and I can't think of them. The bokeh, whatever the hell you want to get. No, no, I, t- I totally exactly get the what you want on the manual yeah. settings, and you, the automatic will never quite do it. But the problem is, you got to set up your shot. I have a friend who actually used to be a professional still life photographer, like for commercials and stuff. And he told me about this one time where he spent literally every waking hour for a week taking a picture of a fucking bottle of Coca-Cola. And the picture that came out is like, wow, that should be in a magazine because it turns out that's what it was. But he ended up taking like there's digital. So he ended up taking like 800 photographs of a bottle tweaking the light, tweaking the light and twisting the knobs and did everything that was like you know, this bottle that's more real than real in the end, this perfect photograph, right? And so that's manual mode. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is our thinking fast mode, according to both of these guys, is where we spend most of our time, more than 90% of our time, almost all of our social time. We are not 
thinking rationally when we are interacting with other humans, except to like hash out ideas, which is a philosophical project. But in our normal like social interactions, how do we guess what we're going to do with the person? You, you know, we're face to face. You say something, I have to respond and react. That's all done in what they call intuitive thought or automatic mode on the camera. And it's therefore done by heuristics. It's done by that weight of tradition. It's done by those kind of you know, either aesthetic or sentimental decisions that you just kind of make. Um, it's not rational. Like you described, I don't make breakfast like you do apparently, but like you described making breakfast, right? Um, Would you just bring up Carl a fry or something like that? Or fry up some British thing. Nobody does. (laughs) Some it, it probably oh involves God. a fish or something. There's some a mash shit. down and no, a fry it involves up and... bacon, sausages, waffles. God, I love toast. British sausages it's, though. It's the only British it's amazing. food I really like. <laughs> it's British sausages. British. Thank Fried God eggs, for you and your little kippers or mushrooms. whatever the hell you call them. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, Cumberland's. Oh, Cumberland sausages. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah, but so anyways, and it's funny, I live in the Cumberland region of Tennessee, but so I'm all confused when I go to your your island. But, um, you know, I've talked to Peter Rogoshin now because I called it your island. Um, yeah. your, your small, savage island nation oh, yeah. where I was recently. It was beautiful. Um, the point being that we have two modes of thinking and that one of these discoveries since John Locke or whoever we want to hold up as an avatar – is that the intuitive mode of thought is where we spend most of our time, do most of our social interaction, have most of our experiences that we call human, but the thinking slow portion, the manual mode, is where we have to go and we have to get right answers about something important. And what we have to be able to do is to tame that, and this is, I think, the essence of that enlightenment that we don't want to lose, of that liberal project that we don't want to lose, is we have to tame those intuitive modes override them very often. Like, for example, the impulse to want to be right, which feeds into confirmation bias and these other biases, uh, where rather than going to disconfirm our hypothesis, which is ultimately what mature science is about, we go to confirm our hypothesis and thus create a mythology or an ideology for ourselves or around our concept. Oh, you know, I think it's this guy's in cahoots with so-and-so and I'm going to go out of my way to go find like every time he was ever in a picture with Bill Gates or something. So they can prove that they were working together. So sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes whatever, but you get me. And so the rational aspect, if we look at liberalism and we kind of loosen our grip on it a little bit, and rather than it being this, you know, age of reason, that's reason becomes the only and the gold standard. It's actually that reason has its domain and that reason is the corrective to the tribal class thinking, very intuitive default mode. But we can't lose that because that's the human. That's, Mm -hmm. I think, the space that we need to be working in, that there's this very human intuitive approach, but that you kind of have to keep in the back of your head that you're probably going to be for, for navigating daily life. Yeah. Great. But you're probably going to get the wrong answer when it matters nine times out of 10. If you live there, you're going to come up with bullshit, self uh, gratifying, self self justifying post hoc rationalization land. Um, And so there's this, and not everybody spends like, not everybody is a scientist in in a sense they are, but they aren't. Um, not everybody spends a lot of time in that. So it becomes that there's almost these two domains. Are we living or are we trying to get right answers so that we can live better? Right. And Mm. one of those requires tremendous discipline 
And that's the ascension of reason. So when I see liberalism, again, I go back to this one axiom, which whether you believe in God or not, doesn't matter. It's we're not that. We don't have omniscience. We don't have omnipotence. We don't have perfect clarity and understanding of thought. And so what? And so what we have to do is we have to be re- willing to recognize that we're limited and fallible. Uh, Christians like to call it fallen. I don't need a story for why we're limited and fallible. I just think that we're not as cool as we think we are and are not as smart as we think we are. In fact, I think I'm wrong 95% of the time and the 5% is pretty damn good. Twitter uh, agrees with you on that, James. Well, Twitter's wrong. Twitter thinks that by everyone. Though, so. Twitter is wrong. Literally. <laughs> what did I say recently? I said that Twitter, it's like, oh shit, what is it? This is actually great. It's like upside down Cassandra, right? Cassandra is this myth <laughs> where it, she sees the future perfectly, but yeah. nobody believes her. But Twitter is like, it sees the present completely wrong and everybody believes it all the time. It's yeah. like, it's like inverse Cassandra complex or something. So anyway, I just think that the, the, we, we have to view liberalism as saying, listen, your natural impulses are going to get it wrong when it matters a lot. So let's tame those. It's, it's like a, I used to think that it was the ascendancy of reason. And then I started to think it's like maybe these guys thought humans aren't very good at this, but it's good when we try to discipline ourselves for it mm-hmm. and that it became kind of a, a, a corrective to our impulses to live in thinking fast, even at times where we need to step into thinking slow. And again, I'm not endorsing Kahneman. Kahneman's got his own issues. Um, but I mean, anybody's anybody in the academic world that's propped up, I think he's the second most cited author or something like that. Anybody's propped up that far? Like hmm. that's one of my one of my little traditional heuristics these days. Is like you said, if everybody's going in a direction with the vaccine, maybe he's great. I don't know. Maybe this isn't a rational yeah. decision, but he's propped up something fake going on over here, right? Like beware. But that concept though, that we have two modes of thinking, intuitive and rational, which in a sense is a mathematician, I'll say are artistic and mathematical. Hmm. I think there's even like this kind of like, this is, I'm, I'm bullshitting right now. Give me a minute. But I remember reading something at some point that said that when we do mathematics, because I'm a mathematician, it crossed my path. It's like you only have one math channel in your brain unless you're John von Neumann or something. And so, like, if I tell you, go ahead and, like, take the number 37 and square it in your head, your whole focus goes down one path and you can't do anything else functionally while you do that because it eats up all of your RAM, so to speak, to run down that path. But if I tell you to start thinking of artistic things, it's like you're in, like, free association land in an instant. You're thinking a million things at once once I tap into that side. So these kind of very linear and very, like, explosive, intuitive, Mm -hmm. fluid sides of thought and i think that these and how long would it take you to square 37 in your head like if you're good at it like 20 seconds 30 seconds if you're arthur benjamin you can do it speaking of all of our famous benjamins the mathematician um he uh he can do these things like up to four digit numbers in like an instant it's really impressive but uh it takes a while because it's a slow form of thought and i think it's that when you need right answers to social questions in the human experience, you need to dive into the intuitive. And when you need right answers about hard, detailed things that matter, you have to dive into the rational. And then wisdom becomes like this capstone that helps you determine which realm you're in and when. And which realm you need as well. At what and, and, and to purpose, right? Yeah. To the circumstances. Yeah. Like, I don't need to be try go be hyper rational with your wife. See how that works out for you. Yeah. Right. It's sometimes it's just or better. Your to, 
Well, yeah, yeah right. Just try it, right? Yeah. But, you know, um, tell your wife that she seems upset and that's an irrational thing. See how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like irrationality is going to multiply. There are times where you, you have to know which realm you're in. And you don't need to like, if you're going to a party, a social mm -hmm. engagement, a conference or whatever, the after meet and greet, the, the reception, and you're like calculating and triangulating who you're going to talk to and when you're going to talk to them and why you're talking. About. First of all, you're spurging out. Stop it. But second <laughs> of all, you're living, you're, you're in the reason mode when you need to be in the intuitive mode and you're, you're, you're missing something. And I think that there's something gigantic here. I think that there is a huge temptation within liberal enlightenment thought to put this primacy on reason rather than putting reason into the container where it goes, um, which is when we need to slow down and get right answers. If somebody's got to have a surgery or something, we need to slow down and get right answers. But if you're just trying to figure out how to make somebody feel better about the fact that they need a surgery, it's not time to start doing calculations. It's time to sit down and put a hand on their shoulder and be a human being with them. Uh, that's honestly exactly how I feel about this. Um, the uh, I I can't help but be brought into mind of Aristotle when really he sums summarizes it all as the cardinal virtue of prudence. Knowing when is a good time for what is literally the beginning of all wisdom, and the very first virtue. And with good reason, this is precisely how uh, somehow we've gone two and a half thousand years back to this exact place, and. It, he because we're in the this, same fight, Carl. Well, exactly. It's still it's, Plato versus condition, Aristotle. Exactly. The human condition has never changed. And so I, he, very much when he's like, man is a rational animal, I think that is the correct dichotomy about what a human being really is in its essence. And it is that I think that the Enlightenment has latched to the rational side. And now it's come to a point where it's stigmatizing the animal side. And the animal side will happily stigmatize the rational side if that's let alone to its own devices as well. And so when you were saying how these things need to be in their proper place and used at their proper time, that's exactly right. And the the problem that I think the rational side has is that it can only work in the realm of theory, right? It can only think. That's all it does. It's rational. And so it can't help but categorize the world. But when you start categorizing things, you are abstracting away from a real animal thing, a real solid thing in the real world. Hmm. And it's that where the beating heart is. It's that where the feelings are. That's, right. I mean, this is what Hegel said about immediacy, right? You have to get to the, the, that's what they're seeking. That's what the sentiment of Rousseau is, is looking for that immediacy, that true experience, hmm. not uh, just interject. No, no, I'm no, not absolutely. criticizing by bringing no. them up. I think that no, they're no, the I reason know. their project has been so successful at screwing up the world in such horrible ways. French Revolution, <laughs> anybody, Bolshevik, you no, know, yeah. the legacy is horrific is because that's tapping into something extraordinarily real. Um, yes. It's something that resonates I, with people because correct. there is a truth, a kernel of truth embedded within it. And and it is the 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 issue, I think is that we have allowed ourselves to pretend the virtue can be done by thought rather than by action. And it is through the exercise of these virtues that we become the kind of people that we have self-respect for and the kind of people that we take on respect for others. And so the reason that I'm trying to get away from abstract categoricals is because they've got this inherent dehumanizing effect. As soon as you start abstracting to more than one person, then you necessarily have to start removing the human element to a degree from whatever group you're trying to identify. And 
this is where I think this is where you end up with the, the Holocaust. This is the, the logical endpoint where it's just a group. I don't know any of them and they're all bad because I've calculated why they are bad. And actually, that's just not real. You know, the the reality is if there is a particular person who has done a particular act that comes with it, a moral judgment that a sensible person would make, then you can take action because that person is a criminal or a conspirator or something like this. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't just have this abstract category that you're applying to a bunch of people you've never seen and you can't identify. And so it's it's this way of thinking that we need to find a way of breaking past so we can marry up the as and there's good very good uh, way of describing it the the, the slow and fast thinking um the because it just genuinely represents the rational and the animal we need to have these married up these just can't be separate ways and unique ways of looking at the works it just isn't it's not true and it it comes with significant price it really does and uh, we're watching it now and the problem as well with the rational side of things is that okay Let's assume that everyone is a unique uh, is is a, is an independent sovereign will that is uh, in in the flesh on this earth. Why? Why do they do anything? They don't know, you know. And so, not only is there a falsehood embedded within it that okay, yeah, actually, turns out that all of your impulses aren't just the sovereign will of its own making its you know choices. It's all biological impulses that are being translated into thoughts by your brain that you desire uh, ultimately but it also means you don't feel like you're attached to anything and it's these human attachments that we really need to start thinking about especially in the modern era where everyone's on social media and no one really feels attached to any of the people that they yeah, actually all of our live relationships near. Are, we're all parasocial exactly. in our entire experience it's, it's exactly horrible. And it's giving us false senses of belonging. And that's actually really quite terrible. And I'm mm -hmm. just as guilty as anyone else of doing this. I'm totally guilty of doing this. Um, but the, the, the concept of belonging, though, the, what, it, what it's predicated on is that there is something into which you could belong. And this is where the human side of the sentimental side of our existence is withering away. It's genuinely a concern to me that people in Generation Z... I see them talking to each other about things that they have no idea about, like what, love. They don't seem to understand the concept of romantic love. They, they have been conditioned by the progressive millennials to view every interaction as transactional mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not sentimental. And so these people just don't understand what it's like to feel like they belong somewhere, to feel like someone is uniquely related to them in some way. And it's, horrific and i i honestly i don't know if it's resolvable i don't know if you can teach someone this if they haven't been brought up in this way i mean i'm genuinely afraid of it actually so i'm a little more hopeful on that uh that it can be because of things you know growing up myself and my my own things i've overcome as i've matured into um what i now believe is a fairly fruitful adulthood uh, so I'm a little optimistic about that, just to allay your fear. I, the thing is, okay. I don't disagree with you about what you're saying. I don't. I just don't lay the blame for it at the feet of the Enlightenment, because I go back to that emphasis on the individual that is also there, that is not present um, in the same way previously. And so that emphasis on, on, on individual, especially individual rights, which thus defines the individual, mm. um, that enables, I mean, why did Locke say life, liberty, and property? Well, if you can't lock somebody up and you can't 
So that's liberty and you can't kill them. And that's life and property. You can't depose them of their ability to feed, clothe and shelter themselves. Then you have a hard time controlling their thoughts. You have a hard time controlling their speech, which is like the expression of their thoughts. And therefore they can be an individual. And in fact, being that he was a pious man, they can pursue their belief in God without um, the uh, strictures of a state or some other external power possibly condemning them uh, to eternal torment because of what, you know, if you were that state, you decided I have to believe about God. What if I'm right and you're wrong being the kind of irresolvable question? And if none of us are God, none of us can answer that question. So none of us has the right to impress that on each other. So this is the individual is preserved in a unique way by the enlightenment um but that there is a there is a method of going too far with it but where i'm seeing again i really want to lay this blame and the enlightenment carries as i mentioned that miasma again its own set of figures that i think that this is the problem we have to figure out how to resolve is the literally and i mean this quite literally is the gnostic thread that has run through the modern era into the postmodern that we've never disentangled academics won't touch it nobody talks about it but this idea of um, this kind of hyper-rationality is the platonic episteme. This hyper-rationality is the fernumpt, this um, idea that, are, that we're going to lift up where you, you identify the problem. So now we have two people and they become a group by default. And so we abstract, we have two opposites and that are different and we try to understand them in some kind of unifying whole. That's the, the dialectic of Hegel. He even describes it in terms of apples at one point. They, oh, you have a green apple or a yellow apple and a red apple. How are they the same? How can they both be the same? How can we dare call them both apples? Um, you know, this kind of thing, this categorization, the idea of obliterating categories to arrive at immediacy is, in fact, in my opinion, the Hermetic project, which is a Gnostic project that is a huge dangerous swing and a miss from what. So when you keep saying it's like I'm like, you sound a little bit like Rousseau. You sound a little bit like Marx. That sounds a little bit like Hegel. But you're like, but no, it's the other way. Yes. And that's, I think, what we're getting at is that you want a non-Gnostic approach to answering the same questions Correct. That, that are there. And this is why I say that I don't feel a need to lay the blame at the feet of the Enlightenment. I feel the need to lay the blame at the feet of this esoteric thread that none of us have pulled out of that story yet. And then my thought is, I, I actually like... You, you know, when you're talking about looking a little bit ahead or whatever, I don't necessarily disagree. I'm not sure what to do with that yet, so I'm just not doing anything with it. But I like the idea. I feel like liberalism properly construed and properly implemented, whatever that would mean. Hmm. So what do I mean by that? Essential identification of the individual and human freedom secured, et cetera. Okay. Allows for the organic evolution of society without the selection pressures of frankly megalomaniacs stepping in and mm. trying to determine which direction things are going to go which is the essence of total, yeah, but of with the lack of direction means that the megalomaniacs and the psychopaths will rise to the top but without well, a direction I, how do you weed out I, I, the wrong direction? I, I think i i actually sorry to interrupt but i, I this no. we seem to be at a, a particularly interesting point here because um there's always direction right direct direction is uh, it comes from your personal impulses, as in what do we want, as in what do we yes, not yes, have, yes, yes. what do we want more of, you know, what would be good for right. us. There, there's always direction, right? So I'm, I'm not worried about that, actually. And there are always yeah, yeah, going to be exactly. out, out external pressures that are going to cause trouble that we have to deal with. The the 
the thing that I want to talk about is the the Gnostic um, thread here, because there's something about the privileging of reason that I think ends us at the point of Descartes, where he essentially says, no, the will is um, the only thing I can be completely sure exists, and everything follows from that. And I, d I don't... You, you are right. I, I, I want a holistic approach to the human being, right? The, the human being is both his body, his will, his experiences, his memories, his stories, his like relationships. He is this full rounded thing. Um, and the problem with the enlightenment is I think the thread goes to that place where it thinks of itself as the only legitimate thing. And I, I agree with you that there could be something we could call liberalism or, um, that does have a holistic approach. But the way that the philosophy is constituted at the moment and the emphasis it places on some things instead of other things leads us to a point where we, I think, are always going to get the fangs of the parasite in us. I think um, that may be true whether we like or not. And so th this is why but I'm I interested think... in beginning. So just a quick thing. I, sure. This is why I'm actually interested in beginning at sort of the place that Aristotle found himself in actually, mm -hmm. and, and working from there, uh, because then you, because uh, Aristotle believes that, you know, you've got all sort, a sort of hierarchy of these things and they're all appropriate. You know, none of them are stigmatized in his view. And that actually seems like a more reasonable place to start to me, but sorry, go on. No, 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 it's fine. It's, it's, I actually think that, again, I, I, I keep drawing back to this miasma thing. It's so important to realize. So like, let's take, let's take uh, Stephen Hicks, for example, and you read Explaining Postmodernism. And, of course, he absolutely blasts Rousseau, as you should. Yes. But then who does he kind of lay at the – who does he kind of, like, create as the character who's sort of the problem, the, the universal problem that leads to postmodern Kant – Right. Mm -hmm. So he makes Kant kind of this arch figure of the counter enlightenment. Yeah. Right. So is Kant an enlightenment figure or a counter enlightenment figure? And you Good go question. into these online debates, at least, or you talk to even philosophers who are professionals and just watch them just like you're talking like catfight. Like, you know, nobody is he an enlightenment figure or a counter enlightenment figure. What this suggests is that there's something else going on. And one of my attempted resolutions to this has been that there were two counter-enlightenments. That's fine. But as a matter of fact, these things aren't distinct. The, the miasma thing is a real problem. You had a character like Hegel who is doing certain enlightenment thinking, who is also explicitly, unambiguously, proudly a mystic. He's a, just a fucking wizard. The dude's a sorcerer. He's not even a philosopher, but he does some philosophy. He does some theology. He does. He doesn't do any science. Let's just not even lie. He's, he's a shithead on that. Um, but you have these characters that are kind of all of these things at once. And so why is this thing that you just brought up? It's because there's more than one definition of reason. That thing where, where for Hegel, the word is vernunft in German, gets translated. I don't even know what that word means on its own, but it gets translated as reason with a capital R when Hegel's rendered into English. Not reason with a lowercase r, reason with a freaking capital R, right? And so now you have this same situation that you always end up with when you have these, whether it's woke, whether it's Marxist, whether it's, what does democracy mean? Well, ask a Marxist, it means you're under communism because everybody's equal, so everybody has equal representation. Without that, it's not truly democracy. What does the people mean? Those people who support the system. You know, There's double meanings for all these things. I think that when we say the enlightenment, 
there's not only just not one counter enlightenment, there's not even the enlightenment. There's this kind of sprawling mess of different thinkers that you kind of can put in and out at the same time. Kant being an, an enlightenment figure and a, a counter enlightenment figure of one type or another all at the same time. Hegel maybe being all three at once. Rousseau, where's he? Definitely some enlightenment ideas definitely inform some of these things that we call the enlightenment. Also a blatant Gnostic. Man is born, uh, born free and everywhere he's in chains. That's There is no more Gnostic sentence than that um, other than I am a Gnostic, you know? And so you put these things down and it's like, which one were these people? So this is why I'm saying we haven't pulled this thread out. In fact, we kind of have to rescue liberalism from the long train of Gnosticism that's been running through it from its beginning because it grew out of the fusion of trying to mess around with the space for reason, meaning two things at once, faith, meaning maybe more than one thing at once, and then mysticism, which is like, oh my gosh, guys, we we're, we can transform the world. Maybe we can transform humans. What does that look like? I don't know. Let's get into some weird race occultism and then put a bunch of Jews in ovens. That's where that ended. But that's race occultism. And this same idea that we can outreason what what the world really is. And so that was a rambly thing that boils down to, I think that there are two definitions at least of reason that have threaded their way through the development that we're calling the Enlightenment in that yeah. particular um, meaning the word the, that particular article there makes us blind to the fact that what we're talking about is a much more complicated and organic mm -hmm. uh, derivation that sprawled across over hundreds of years with a couple mm -hmm. of hundred years with lots of different kinds of thinkers. And so that's where like my project with regard to thinking about liberalism or post-liberalism, if we want, or going forward or 21st century liberalism or holistic liberalism, let's mm -hmm. just make up words. Let's just throw adjectives. I don't care. The, my thinking with it is, is we have to get down to the essence of what was trying to be achieved, what something made for enormous, and I don't mean it in a flippant or glib way, genuine progress over the last 300 years. And I know the return dudes with their V can can pretend that there's that this progress is all fake and they show the picture of like, you know, a wonderful palace and they're like, why do we build these ugly buildings now? And it's because we don't have slaves <laughs> well, no, they're, they're, they've got genuinely, like, actually valid points about that. Because there are valid points, and there are invalid yeah. parts as well. Like, they, yeah, I've absolutely. seen, I've seen them share the images of like the oh, czarist yeah. palaces yeah. in Russia that literally bankrupted the nation so yes. that the king could have yes. his awesome palace. Yes. And there's a reason why we don't do that anymore. Is because when everybody's actually free to do their own thing, we don't bankrupt nations to build something awesome, sure. um, except for you know vaccines or something um so, so let me but, let me but the point up. being is i, I just yeah. think that there's more than one meaning of reason one of which mm -hmm. is mystical which is that science it, it's the episteme and scientia or the vernunft and and the system wissenschaft that hegel put out and then there's this thing this is just like with, with the progression of science newton's over here cooking up calculus figuring out the bracastroni problem or whatever it's called bracastochrone that's what it is and he's over here solving that problem he's over here developing fucking differential equations out of his ass creating physics you know me mechanics like unbelievable stuff this guy's doing meanwhile he's drinking mercury so he can figure out how to live forever right yeah like yeah. we got some problems here 400 years later we're like oh shit quantum mechanics and science hasn't even really matured. We have Hegel criticizing Newton over optics. 
Hmm. Well, Newton's optics turned out to be right. Hegel's full of shit um, because we have this guy that's over here working in his reason. Oh, you can't, how could there be seven colors inside of one color, you know, or whatever he's doing. Yeah. This is just nonsense. Um, what you have is this maturation process of what we're calling the enlightenment. And I feel like we were to a point where there was, where where we're really getting to a kind of a mature understanding of it. And that's also when the parasite latched onto the side of it. We're the thirties and the forties, not to hold them up as some special time or whatever, but this is when we really started to like, Holy crap, we've got to pull some of the mysticism off of the way we've thought about some of these things. Um, And this is kind of why a lot of people look back at the fifties as like this hyper rational, but in some weird way, really good time is because it's kind of like the peak of the fruit of that, Hmm. Turned out to be positive positivist movement, which is its own complicated thing and went too far. But there's it's almost like we have to let the idea of reason mature and we have to shed off that Gnostic aspect, which is not reason. It's like the difference between truth and your truth. They have like reason and our reason or science and the science. Um, And it's that where i think this interplay goes so again it's i don't i don't even know that there's a thing called the enlightenment to lay blame upon but to the degree that is true i don't lay blame there i we we don't know what it looks like when we let it when we when we mature it and take this gnostic aspect and just hammer it out because nobody talks about it nobody nobody i mean it's 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 green space completely right now so the the problem that I think we might have, and I'm not saying this is definitively, but this has been my impression of it, is that actually it might not be possible to separate the thread of Gnosticism from liberalism. And so if that is the case, we have to question what our commitment to the to the term liberalism is. Um, because actually, I think, and there are... I think I was guilty of this for quite some time. I was emotionally attached to the term liberalism and thinking of mm-hmm. myself as a liberal. I, I had attached a bunch of moral sentiments to this that made mm-hmm. me in some way a morally good person because sure. I thought that this contained something within it. But I think actually we can detach ourselves from the term and uh-huh. realize that actually this doesn't make us morally invalid and it also allows us to be more flexible um, with what we do here, because I agree with you, there there are definitely different kinds of reason or intelligence. I agree with you, by the way, on detaching from the, con- yeah. the term as well. And so th- this is why I'm happy to use post-liberal because I, I don't want to, I don't want to abandon liberalism, you know. And I never, I never have wanted to, but the, it's clear that there is something that's wrong with it. And it, I think you may have identified accurately in the Gnostic thread, but it, I think it is so bound up. I don't understand how it could be unpicked. Right. I don't, I don't, I I don't mean, see I don't see a way, right? So all I'm thinking is right, okay, well let's we we can bifurcate here and learn from the experience of that liberalism has given us and mm-hmm. craft something that is free of that Gnostic problem. Right. And so this for me is where it's like I'm trying to I, I want to boil down. Imagine it's like the, literally we're taking liberalism and putting it in a pot and boiling it down. And so all of these kind of false assumptions, we don't have to think so much about these. I mean, we need, we need to address them, but like what's under them, why, what's going on? What were these guys after? What were these ideas chasing? And that's, again, I, I just keep coming back to it is that 
let's start with a, a simple fundamental axiom, which I think is the fundamental liberal axiom. We don't have to call it the liberal axiom. The name doesn't matter. I'm not a, I actually, by the way, don't have an emotional attachment to being identified as a liberal. I don't like to be identified uh, like at a, as anything. Well, surely Once it's just I, James Lindsay is. That's right. People are like, how liberal of you? you? Um, no, no. How mythological of you? You know, James yeah, Lindsay, right. unique person, I, the, the, unique the man, the myth, place. the legend. Um, <laughs> that's not wrong though. Everyone uh, is, you know, you know the, but yeah. So the, the thing is though, is it's, we're not God and we're not going to be God. And let's start from there. What does it look like if we just accept that no human being gets to have that status or gets to usurp that status and lord it over some other person? And the word lord is chosen very intentionally in that expression. What does it look like? What, do, what does political authority look like? How do, what, what do we have to do to deal with that? What does, you know, what does kind of social relating look like? under this kind of thing. And what you start ending up with is a whole lot of libertarianism and a whole lot of Americanism and a whole lot of stuff that, you know, they stabbed at really well in the Magna Carta. And so, you know, you're kind of along the lines of those projects when you get to that point. And so it also is a fundamental rejection of the Gnostic project. It's, we're never going to be, it's not even that we're not gods. It's, we will never become gods. Hmm. We, we have no, claim to make on that level of authority. So then you have questions like, well, how do you decide who gets to be in charge, whether it's politically, whether it's in terms of a project, whether it's leading a family? Well, the answers come down to things like, you know, traditional mores and which is a question, but ultimately competence and merit. The people who get to lead projects are people who prove that they have the access or, or the ability to lead a project mm. as the hard part becomes how do you determine whether or not they have proven such credentialism is a problem. Nepotism is a problem. People just, you know, going on TV and scamming a bunch of voters and getting elected, even though they're frauds is a problem. People being run you know, like actresses being run, you know, through deliberate campaigns, through things like the justice Democrats is a problem. Um, you, you have ways that that system would be gamed, but, but, but Jordan Peterson hits something extremely important here that the legitimacy in the hierarchies if we want legitimate hierarchies comes from competence and that that's an ideal in the sense, not in like a platonic ideal, but that the higher the level of ordering of a hierarchy, um, the higher the competence is the fundamental fundamental principle ordering that hierarchy, the less corrupt it is. So those are kind of like two um, antagonistic competence and corruption are like literally two antagonistic concepts. And so by, if we start with the assumption, so again, what does it mean to be liberal absent all of the kind of like John Locke and all Montesquieu and all these guys, what do they write? Absent all of that baggage, what does it mean? Well, we start with the idea that we're not God. How do we resolve these questions? Like who gets to be in charge? Well, we have to defer to merit and competence. And what we're, what it then becomes is a mechanism that starts to build out legitimacy and hierarchies, mm-hmm. which is ultimately, I think, what the liberal project is meant to be about. It's a conflict resolution scheme. It's a mechanism by which we can start to um, hash out legitimacy and hierarchies to the best of our ability. It's never going to be perfect. But the problem is, is, and this is what I alluded to this earlier, you brought it up earlier. And when you bring up now, you know, that you had an emotional attachment to identifying as a liberal, which God knows we know a lot of people, uh, you know, in our spaces that are that way yeah. pathologically. Um, what, what I see happening 
in 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 that that case is that people are expecting liberalism to do something it's not meant to do. It's not meant to give you a story of your life. It's meant to make it so the state can't give you one for you. It's mm-hmm. not meant to give you meaning in your life. It's meant to free you up to pursue meaning where you seek it. It's not meant to tell you how to operate your relationships. It's meant to allow you to pursue that on your own terms, which is freedom and mm-hmm. scary and not something everybody wants. When I've been to China many times, um, I've talked to Chinese people who obviously live under a tyranny. And some of them are like, please, please, please don't let America fall. If it falls, the world's done. And others are like, we like to be told what to do. It simplifies things. I haven't ever run into an individual of this kind, but I just read something yesterday talking about one of the impulses underneath communism. Of course, I have. it's very famous that it gives you the power to punish your neighbor, but there's a lot of people who actually don't want, or actually to get the state to punish your neighbor for you. They don't mind being told what to do if it means that their neighbor gets told what to do and it's not going to, you know, they don't mm-hmm. mind it. They like that idea. I talked to a guy, one of the things that radicalized me in like 2012 or 13, I was talking to a grad, a guy I went to grad school with and he was, we were, you know, it was atheist days, right? <laughs> Back in the day. And I mean, you were, you were in there, I was in there and the whole thing. And there's like all the feminist bullshit. Mm-hmm. It was just out of freaking control. And I was talking mm-hmm. to this guy about his frustrating me. And he was like, yeah, but I look forward to our feminist overlords. I'm like, wait, what? And he, I'm like, this is some, some beta orbiter stuff. And yeah. he's like, I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, when women are telling men what to do, that's one less thing for me to think about. And it turns out that's exactly the rationale I heard in China. Mm-hmm. So it's not everybody craves this. It's scary to be free. But if you start yeah. believing that liberalism is going to answer questions for you, like what's your meaning in life or what it's supposed to be or what your aesthetic experience is supposed to look like, then of course it's going to disappoint you. It's designed literally to make sure authorities can't do that to you. And so at this point, do you mind if I interject? So I, I think this is very interesting because I think it's at this point, because Benjamin, I know you've been interested in the concept of tradition uh, for a while and the, the spaces you've been... Tradition. Yeah, just the, the spaces you've been engaging with recently. Um, and I think this is where the concept of tradition actually begins to apply because yes, uh, I agree with everything you just said there, James, um, but I'm also aware that what you've said is particular to a people, a place, a time, and the result of a continuous and contiguous history. Uh, because like you said, not everyone values that. But the the way that was framed was very much rationalistically, right? It was, this was the, as I was saying, ideas are actually a product of a time and place. Um, the the way you'd frame it, I'm not, I don't mean this is a criticism either. It's It's a very natural for us post-enlightenment people to frame our ideas in exactly that way um and what you what you've constructed there is a kind of ideological frame that we can pick up and place down um but that's not how i think we should think about it because as you referenced um there's a reason that we speak in english there's a reason that we care about the things that we care about as the postmoderns would say we're placing value on the fact that we've been talking about them and there's a reason that you trace that lineage back to the Magna Carta, because what we are talking about really are the the values of England. Uh, and this is something that, of course, why wouldn't America hold the values of England? It was founded by Englishmen. Why wouldn't these continue to be propagated generation after generation? And so now we're not thinking in the abstract realm of ideas. We're thinking in the concrete real world in which we live. Uh, and I think that changing the locus of 
where we begin like that actually allows us to center ourselves in a in a way that allows us to properly understand the people around us as well um because what we, like i said i agree with everything you're saying but i'm also aware that i only agree with that really because i'm an englishman if i was some iranian imam or something i'd be like no this is preposterous why would anyone agree to any of this god's law is god's law you know they they, they would they would just think you're a, a kook a loon but to me it seems like second nature and of course i agree with all that why wouldn't i you know who could who could think differently well a chinese person you know an iranian and so if this is the problem with remaining in the world realm of the abstract and so if we make it particular and civilizational it also means that we actually have to draw boundaries right it actually means that we we have to define where it started and where it stops and the the range that we have within that is where we are and so now we actually don't need to find ourselves groping in the dark for what hierarchy should look like uh, you are right i mean the the hierarchy will be based ultimately on either corruption or competence that's absolutely correct uh, and they are in they're in contradiction i agree with that and but also there's a way of being competently corrupt uh that I think someone like Vladimir Putin actually deeply embodies. He's he's obviously a very competent guy, but obviously he's a, an evil villain. So they 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 aren't mutually exclusive, even though they're in contradiction. But we don't value having a competent villain in charge. We value having someone who might be actually incompetent, but at least they're virtuous in charge. That would be preferable because of our cultural uh, situation. And so once we have this sort of continuum that we can see ourselves within and situated in the human experience, in a time, in a place, then I don't know if we can call that liberalism, because as you said, liberalism is, is this body of ideas. But it is definitely a product of this time and space. You know, you, you, if you were to trace the genesis of liberalism, Stephen Hicks just says, well, it begins in England. Uh, and there's a reason for that because what, and this is what Michael Oakeshott's perspective was, was just the distillation of the English political tradition. And it is through these political traditions that we could just carry on as we do intuitively and instinctively, because you are right. I mean, like, like I said, like, we can rationalize why these things are good, but the rationalization will really be for people like us and those foreigners who agree with us, right? And so now I've had to make a distinction between these people and those people. And that's, you know, more realistic than having the abstract set of ideas. I'm not even sure where I'm going with this point, really, <laughs> but it's it feels it feels important to sort of take the ideas out of space you know the abstract the, the realm of the forms and put them in the in the world this is where they belong and this is who they belong to and this is why they belong to these people and you are right you know that, like they they came into being for a reason because of royal oppression against the peasantry and against the nobles that the, the argument was well god has mandated this way so well we'll see you know we'll see whose right arm mandates it you know who god is really with on that case and it turns out that it was actually with the people with the with the the lower orders and not just with the king and this had happened a few times actually and eventually the king gets his head cut off until we get to this negotiated settlement effectively that becomes the the sort of english and then american constitutional system um but that is 
the product of layers and layers and layers of tradition and experience and personal negotiation between people. And so this is why I return to the kind of mythological view of this thing. You know, it's not just something we can abstract away and then, you know, we can't, we can't give liberalism to Afghanistan. They don't have the institutions. They don't have the traditions. They don't have the thoughts in their head, the, in the instincts to make this thing work. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a falsehood. For so them. it's not their mythology. But, so just one interjection. Go ahead, Benjamin. Um, when you bring up the mythological and the sentimental, it's not just a negative. It's not just romance. It's not just faith. Um, we can yeah. we can see like Hegel embarked on a project and J.R.R. Tolkien embarked on a project, mm. a massive project that have stood the test of time and influenced huge amounts of genre. But they were both operating probably mythologically, both oriented or dealing with the same kind of imaginal forms, right? But Hegel abstracted them into ideas. Tolkien put some ideas in there, but nested them in character, right? So he oriented his imagination differently than Hegel. So the Gnostic tradition, I think, is a type of creativity. It's a type of Western man, a man who is trying to achieve godhood. And that that project is incredibly ambitious project and will drive people to do great things. Now, those great mm -hmm. things might not be good, but those ambitious people that that prompt become God will 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 create great things, uh, terrible things, too. Um, I and mean, that's like the tolerance of sociopaths question. How much do you tolerate sociopaths because they'll create, say, industries by yeah. doing horrible yeah. things that yeah. benefit us all <clears throat> massively, even though they do massive evil in the process of doing it. I mean, that's a hard question. So, but um, seeing that, that type, the Gnostic type is always like in dialogue, has always been creating artistic works alongside these other types of artistic works, um, poetry and, and storytelling that, that expand the tradition. I just, I, I think that there's a dialogue artistic there. Is a strong word there for <laughs> for the Gnostics, in my opinion. Um, I don't feel like there's very much art going on there. But uh, I mean, this is a story in Genesis. Like Genesis chapter three is about this. So like this is a this is a human dialogue that's not yeah. going away. Yeah. Um, definitely not going away. But what I'm worried about with this this contingency of culture, I do agree. We're not going to just take you know, liberalism and plop it down in Afghanistan and it's going to take off. Um, it would have to grow, grow there, right? It would have to be that the ideas underneath it land in people in the right way and they articulate it in their own, their own contingent context, et cetera. And it has to grow and flourish and, and whatever on its own and kind of grow in and through that context. I don't disagree with that, but I will be as culturally chauvinistic as I have to be about this particular tradition. And I don't think it's just a product of the fact that I happen to live in it and happen to think this way and happen to have been born into a tradition that thinks this way. I look around the world and as Donald Trump rightly pointed out at many shithole countries, and I see that there are better and worse answers to these questions of how human beings, which I do not think are despite our cultural differences, despite our different histories, I do not think that we're functionally that different as organisms, um, as that animal side. If we're going to ground our future political projects in the human, I don't believe in universal man, but I do believe that the uh, boundary of that which is a, is human the, as, a, as a collection is, um, is, 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 is a bounded set. There's a gulf between that set and the set of chimpanzees. 
that is enormous. It's it's not a small difference. Um, it, it is a constrained system that defines what it is to be human, and the similarities within that does define kind of a imaginary and abstract, yes, universal concept of human. But whatever that boils down to, it seems to me literally not just intuitive or obvious or anything, but just evidentiary over the past 300 years that where these values, we can say are these English values, or as as um, Stephen Hicks often frames it, the English Enlightenment or Scottish Enlightenment, even as a Southerner, I'm in the United States, I'm just kidding, my family is from New York. Uh, but mostly, actually, my, his, my, my family history is partly English and Scottish. Um, you know, it's a little more more British highly than that. I've got some German in me to watch out. Uh, the bugs are coming for you. Uh, but I've got this whole view that this this English Enlightenment tapped into fundamentally human values that somehow attached to what Sam Harris kind of comically called human flourishing and moral landscape. 15 years ago or whatever oh, i i want to reclaim the term human flourishing i think that's a perfectly noble goal right um, but the thing is, is i don't <clears throat> think that these ideas are i don't go as far into the postmodern condition as to to accept that this is a totally contingent cultural phenomenon that these ideas worked if these ideas did work because these ideas in this culture because they um grew out of this culture, right? And so there's that aspect of it. But where these ideas have been successfully implemented in other places, they have led to similar levels of flourishing. Like I said, when I go to China, you have people who desire to be ruled. You have those people in America too. I talk to those people. They're all over. The My friend, for example, who had master's degrees coming out of his butthole, but he couldn't get a job. And he wants women to rule over him and like whip him or whatever the hell he wants. I don't know. And some weird well, shit. Just and a so, brief interjection. It's not just be... the uh, export of the ideas, but it's the virtues too. You can't just have liberal but, ideas without is, some sort of where, Christian where, where, virtue. Where, well, I don't know that it has to necessarily be. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say it has to be a Christian Humility, virtue. patience. Every time that you guys bring up a virtue, it's a Christian virtue. Every single virtue yeah, but, that you guys give up uh, is canonized, yes, those, right? I so, would also uh, that's go further and say that this isn't contingent either. I'd say that Christianity codified those virtues extraordinarily well in a cohesive system that's yeah. uh, extremely pro-social. But these, I think, again, Aristotle wasn't a Christian. These are human virtues. No, but the these Christians are, were very influenced by Aristotle. Well, of course they were. So, of course they it, were. You know, yes. they, they took that from him. He didn't take that from them. So, so just as a quick interjection, because I find this fascinating, because I wonder if this isn't the cultural difference between me as an Englishman and you as Americans, right? Because, um, <laughs> no, no, and I, I, I'm, I'm serious about this, because Americans do have a habit of seeing themselves as universal men, because America is, of course, the most successful project of liberalism. And it's done phenomenally well. Because historically, it was very rooted in the English tradition of liberalism, which is, as Oakeshott put it, just a distillation of English political practice into mm -hmm. theory. But of course, mm -hmm. if you've got a bunch of people who have been born and raised as Englishmen and then calling themselves Americans, but still having the common law, still having these values of accountability and justice and political de decentralization and all of the traditional values of England just re replicated on the American continent, um, then 
it makes sense that that would work because of course to the people and this goes down to the very like the way the language is constructed the kind of institutions we have the family values that we share and that you're raised with you know these things are these things are radically different in britain than they are literally just a hundred miles away in france france has a totally different set of social values to the english and it's actually remarkable and the germans have a totally totally different set of intellectual values to the english and then that's not even talking about what the italians the spanish and the greeks are like and so it's it's actually kind of crazy like i had a fr- i had a conversation with a greek friend of mine the other day and i was like mate if your cousin drove to your house and he was in a stolen car and you recognized the car and it was someone one of your workmates cars would you tell the police and he's like no that's crazy, right? You would tell the police, right? I would tell the police. You have to tell the police. But that's because we have literally got radically different social values. He would see that as a form of betraying his cousin. I would see that as a form of betraying the rule of law entirely in this country, right? I would know you, you, you have committed a crime. You have not been virtuous. You have not done the right thing. And I would be doing the right thing by contacting the police. And it would be right that you be punished for your theft. That's a very much a, a, an English set of values. Yeah, it's not it's not something that they value in Greece. Right? <laughs> probably not in America. I don't know, right? That's not that, a, no, like, bro, you should probably go give that back. Like, you'd have a conversation with your cousin. Sure, sure, sure. But you but sure if, as if hell wouldn't go trans- rat your cousin out. Well, if he was intransigent about it, you know, maybe I think you probably should. Um but the, the the point is though, the American perspective has always homogenized Europe. Well, and that's it's because we're the nation of immigrants. It, no, no, it's not just that. I think it's the remoteness from Europe. Hmm. As well, well, that helps. Uh, and and the it's the like thing our is best Europe, thing. <laughs> well, when you're a lot closer, you you start to gain a better understanding of actually how particular and parochial our value system is. I mean, mm-hmm. for example. Um, the English have never, as a culture, have never been particularly haunted by the ghost of Faust, right? Whereas the Germans, and he's been mentioning many Germans in this, they're, they're deeply riddled by it. They, they, yes. they don't know what to do about this concept. But there's never yes. been a problem for the English because the English actually have always been quite humble in this idea that actually, of course, God's there. And of course, we're not gods. Of course, you just look at what's in front of your face and you do the best you can with what you have. Um, because the English, uh, I, I spoke to a German professor a while ago. He was like, well, you're, you're intellectually lazy. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's true. That is actually quite true. Uh, we're not stupid. We're just intellectually lazy. Uh, the Germans are not intellectually lazy, though. And this is one of the problems with Kant. Like, if you look at what Kant is trying to do, he's essentially trying to formulate a technique for looking into the mind of God and say, right, what is a categorical moral imperative? Only God can set a categorical moral imperative. That's nonsense. No one, no human being could possibly do that. But of course, it didn't come out of the mind of an Englishman. It came out of the mind of a German. And I wonder if this Faustian spirit is the Gnostic element that is running through this. And so when we see this this uh, exchange of um, our souls in exchange for unlimited wisdom and power, uh, well, this is essentially what the the transgender movement is asking for. Yes, yes, yes. Like we want, we want to be able to do it. And so you can see the Faustian German spirit being embodied in this movement, but it's very alien to the English perspective. And of course, America being an English country means that it is, I think the parasite that you were trying to describe earlier that you, you, you know, you were saying that this is, and I, and so, but when you put it in this perspective, you can actually name where it's come from. You can name the people doing it. You can name. It's yes. not just an abstract thing. 
but then it means that you have to kind of police your own boundaries, right? You have to say, well, actually, we should do things in the English way because this is what we feel is right. This is our prejudice. Or, right? or you can you can do a little empirical. If you look at how these different cultures, let's say France, uh, Germany, and Britain, how they scaled when they were exported to other places or when America was started, like what, mm -hmm. which traditions from Europe uh, stabilized at scale and the English stabilized at scale uh, and, uh, uh, and maybe uh, uh, the Catholic, like, hold on, but... but but this thing, which traditions from Europe? There is no Europe, really. That's the thing. The, the, like, half of, well, not more than half of the Americas is Spanish or Portuguese. Yes. And that is utterly alien. You know, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So something in the Spanish thing. tradition scaled and, and was oh, able yeah. to stable. I mean, more or less, they have a lot of problems with communism and stuff like that. Tyranny. But, but, uh, Tyranny scaled. <laughs> And and uh, something was unique about the way that the English uh, tradition scaled and was, uh, you know, it's in Australia, it's in Canada, mm -hmm. it's here, right? So yeah. maybe Germany can't scale, but it can scale within the English, right? Maybe, right? It, it, do, do, do you see yeah, what I'm I saying? Mean, the, like like the, the, German, the body politic. Germans should be in charge of kitchens. They shouldn't be in charge of countries because uh, German <laughs> food is wonderful and German governance is diabolical. Um, the we other way around, ours. of course, applies to England, right? English kitchens are terrible, but English governance is wonderful. Um, and this is what we're trying to achieve with Magna Carta, with the American Constitution, with liberalism in and of itself as a project. Um, but this means we have to be able to identify what is not what we're looking for. And actually, you know, now, now I've, I've been able to bifurcate these things, say, right, okay, you are right. It's not just the Enlightenment as one giant thing. There are lots of different places where Enlightenments were going on. And, you know, cross-pollination of ideas comes back and forward. And we are suffering from one of these cross-pollinations right. at the moment. French and German cross-pollinating into English and Scottish. Absolutely. Um, this is and, David Starkey's point. Correct. And this is, again, yeah. Stephen Hicks, where he's talking about Germans and ba bad Germans and more bad Germans is like yeah. the title of one yeah. of his chapters. Yeah. If you haven't read into the Swabian Pietist movement, which was a Southern German mysticism movement, that it's like the within the broad conception of Europe, it's like the longest holdout in mysticism as the modern era kind of persisted. Mm. And this is Hegel was trained at one of their seminaries. He was trained. I'm as not familiar with Lutheran. that, actually. Familiar. Yeah. So the Swab Swabia, you know, the Southern portion there of germany uh hmm. swabia held out with some 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 occult magic for a very long time uh well into the 19th century well into the hmm. 19th century and that's where a lot of these bad germans and more bad germans happened to come from but the influence there of mysticism was much more profound than you had in in england this probably oh, yeah. why this spirit of faust and of course Goethe was one of the characters who was swept up in all of this uh, just as a quick thing that you in england uh in this this sort of time period suffering dramatically from puritanism the, yes. the burning the witches opposite problem yeah exactly yes, exactly yeah and so uh what you actually if you haven't looked into the swabian pietist no, thing. I'm going to it's put it in the browser. A lot of these so-called these so-called Germans and bad Germans. You, you want to look up a character by the name of of Friedrich Oettinger. Uh, I can't ever say his name. It's O E T I N G E R, right? Oettinger, or it's O with a freaking umlaut, which nobody can pronounce except Germans. Him, yeah. yeah, and so this guy is one of he's he's, he's a teacher of Hegel. This is a very important mm. character in understanding. Uh, also, another kind of German mystic much earlier is Jacob Burma, which is B O with an umlaut H M E. Um, these characters are extremely influential in the progress of this broad German Enlightenment, which is 
where you're getting this kind of Kantian thought, you're getting this kind of Hegelian and Marxist thought. A difference with American culture to British culture, besides the fact of this Greek cousin loyalty thing, which we have a surprising streak of, kind of the fundamental American value, if I had to kind of boil it all just, down. Just a quick thing that we, I mean, we probably do here, but I think that if you approached it as a philosophical conundrum, Almost every English person would say, well, of course you should tell the police. When I listen you to your should. accent, I, I hear you say that. But if you were speaking Cockney, I don't think you would. Um, yeah, well, that, that's that, that's what I'm trying to hammer home. Uh, yeah. I think they would concede that that is the value that they know that they should uphold. Whether they do or not is a totally different question. Obviously, not everyone here is a sure. saint or anything. Well, the uh, thing in America, when I said we're a nation of immigrants a moment ago, is the fundamental American value is, oh, you're an American? Great. Get a job. Like, which is, I don't give a shit about you. Do something productive. Yeah. And that's kind of what binds us all together. It doesn't matter if yes. you're Muslim. It doesn't matter if you're Buddhist. It doesn't matter if you're white. It doesn't matter if you're black. You're here. You're, you're, you're legal. Great. Shut the hell up and get a job. Like, that's, you know, we... That, but that's deeply enables, Protestant, isn't it? It is. Well, and it enables us... Protestant. It also enables us, though, to, uh, as I said to somebody the other day, where some intersectional shit was on Twitter, and I just mm -hmm. replied kind of glibly, and I said, can we just get back to a time when I could like people in particular and dislike people in general? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, I want to like cool people in particular because mm -hmm. I got to know them and I got to hear their ideas. But this is that rampant, like, shut up, get a job, do something mm -hmm. productive, be somebody and also you're an individual and that's what I'm going to respect in you is what you've yeah. done, not where you came from, not what, not even what your traditions are. Oh yeah. These are your traditions. Cool. Let's have a barbecue and find out about them or whatever. Or let's hang out. Like, do yeah. your, do your fest. Let's come. Let's all have like Greek day or whatever, or whatever it happens to be. It doesn't matter. Hmm. But it's like, at the end of the day though, if you're an American, it's like, shut up and get a job. What are you doing? You know, that's our is, value. Yeah. This is the American tradition. This is, which this is why, is, it taps into that idea that there is something that's not the exact idea of the universal man, but, but there it's is some universal. It's definitely it, not universal. It's definitely this not, is not no. how it, this is not how Italians think. Right. Um, uh, but, Unless they come what, to America and they get told to shut up and get a job. <laughs> they, no, no, no. They, they'll, they'll do it because they're forced to do it, but that's not, the wellspring of their culture. Um, no, but it I, is the, I understand. I understand. It is the and, wellspring and, of English culture, right? It is it, exactly here. Get a job. Stop being a loafer. Other people, uh, you know, don't rely on them. They should rely on you. You know, you should do your part for the rest of the community rather than have them do their part for you. The, 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 these are the, very parochial values. That's the, the, the Protestant thing. work ethic. Yes. Yeah. These, these uh, are very parochial values, and so this is the this is the problem I think inherent in liberalism is if because because see now we're talking about things in a totally different way, right? Instead of constructing an abstract set of uh, ideas that connect together in a certain way and suggesting that this could be universalized, now we're talking in a particular way and saying, look, we're actually we exist in relation to other groups of people. It, it, essentially, you're speaking in a more European way right because i think the american project being a, a propositional nation actually contains kind of this problem where you guys fall into abstractions whereas in europe we are not propositional nations and so we are used to the tradition the the long accumulated uh, acclimate long accumulated yeah i was right um yeah cultural baggage that we've had with one another, right? I know what a Scot is going to say to me. I know what a Frenchman is going to say to me. I lived in Germany for eight years, right? I know I know every German thinks 
before they open their mouth, right? Because they are all the same in many different ways, but they're also all very different to what the average person in England is like, right? And they're all lovely, by the way. You know, I never met a German I didn't like, um, but that's because I never put them in charge of the country. Um, the, <laughs> the, I'm, I'm, and I swear to God, I'll go to my grave believing this. Um, uh, but you, you realize that there are these these differences are really important and they matter and they are tangible and what's more is you begin to build a relationship with the differences and it's probably the same with americans and mexicans actually um because i mean i personally don't view mexicans as americans uh i the the blacks are americans the whites are americans the mexicans are not americans they're mexicans and it's because they come from the inquisitorial legal system. They come from the Mediterranean family system. They come from a different religion. They speak a different language. Oh, by Mexican, They're you not... mean the Latinx? What? No, no, just Mexicans. Okay, okay. You mean like just Mexicans? Oh. People from Mexico okay. are not yeah, Americans. Yeah, yeah, sorry. They because are Mexicans, right? You said American in front of Americans who mean the United States, and we got confused. You meant Americans like American continents. Okay, we're clarifying. No, no, that. I mean like people from the United States, right? Mexicans Me- Me- from the United States. No, no. Mexicans have a different legal system. They have a different yes. family structure. They have a different religion and a different language. Correct. In Europe, you would never call that. Uh, you know, um, you, you like that. You, you're essentially saying that these are Spanish people, right? Mexicans are Spanish people. You are English people. You're not the same. They're not the same. Mm-hmm. They're different. Okay, I see right? what you're saying. Yes, and so. It's it, so when you know when they're like oh Mexican Americans like no you're just Mexicans who live in America you're not Mexican American well that, that, no see you right? we have a completely different way of thinking about it. America I mean, and we have a problem with the border you know but we have so much cultural like mixing we don't think of America as white Anglo-Saxon European that's just one strain I'm uh, not I'm not right it's it's see now. You you are abstracting into a category already there, right? Because what I'm talking about is well, America is uh, so abstract. That's the problem with America. We're we're it, it not is, as parochial but, as you guys. No, no, it, it is. That's exactly the problem, and it's because America is a propositional Enlightenment nation that's built yeah. on liberal uh, liberalism itself, liberal philosophy, and so. But there is a thing that other people outside of America recognize as an American, and it doesn't mean white. It means American, and that doesn't mean Mexican, right? Like, I don't know how to describe. It. Like, like I said, the blacks are Americans, but also the whites are Americans, and there are you know people who are born and raised in America in American customs and traditions who have never been in another country who are not black or white but are American, right? But people who move to America from another country and like, yeah, I just want to get a job and you know work hard and make money. That's not enough to make them. No, no, no. I agree. I agree. I agree. Okay. I know what you're saying now. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, That is true. There is a cult. There is a distinct cultural value, Mm. cultural suite of values that defines that which is American. But but also, it's not just the values. It's about how you were raised. It's about the communities you were raised. No, I I hear you. The the customs. You know the character. Yeah. I agree. I agree. But the, the one thing that America has is that Europe doesn't have, and I think it's actually the lack of this that's kind of crippling Europe at the moment, is this incorporative ideology that is becoming an American, right? We don't have that's, that. Over that's exactly what, what I was, was was wanting to suggest off of that mm. is, yeah, because you can have that uh, character, whether they come from Mexico or whether they come from China, whether they come from 
I guess your yeah. your your primitive island, and they can become American. Um, they can kind of adopt that sweet. They can of, join the tribe. Uh, well, yes, in a sense, but hmm. um, Benjamin had a wonderful point, though. When we look at how what happens empirically hmm. when these um, particular sets of values get exported, formerly by empire, uh, but not as much in the literal, not in the literal sense by empire by anybody but China anymore, but we have these kind of weird economic empires and so on. We thought, allegedly, we thought we could transform China into a kind of more Western liberal nation by exporting business values, which they seem to have uh, judoed on us. Turns out we didn't study our martial arts before we went to the center of they, martial they arts. They acted Chinese about it. <laughs> a little bit. Um <laughs> Or, yeah, among other That's things. not an insult. That's just an observation. No, but I mean, there's more yeah. to it. There's more to it than this. But uh, the, the, um, the fact of the matter is that when we export these values, we see improvements. Sure. And that doesn't take away from somebody's, like in, in America, we, we I don't see anything that takes away from your ability to be German or Mexican or whatever as you become American, which right. is a very so, interesting thing. Um, having known, you know, people from all over or from all different backgrounds who at the, like, I don't know how many uh, Iraqis, for example, that I've met who become American, mm-hmm. Right. They come, they immigrate, they go through naturalization, they they get they become legal citizens. And, you know, so you have these guys, their accent never goes away, their kind of cultural demeanor doesn't change because they were raised in these things. And yet, you know, they're walking down the street literally in a suit made of American flags, like waving an American flag, yeah. shouting about the 4th of July, quoting Thomas Jefferson. And th- there's something about this hmm. where they become uniquely Iraqi and American at the same time. And that incorporative element, and I think you're right, it is crippling Europe. And it's, I think, why you guys keep yeah. have, have fought with each other the way that you have so much and america i think was founded in part looking over at you guys and being like not you specifically as an english no 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 yeah no, europe, I know europe you know. broadly with yeah. the uk kind of as an appendage mm-hmm. of that uh i know we don't get too much into whether or not it's european um in saying like not this way american man you know um let's let's try a different path uh and that's why i said that you know oh you're here you're legal get a job become such a constitutive thing for what it means to be American. And it's well, also, the, it's not with the, like the Australian tall poppy, keep your head down mate kind of attitude, mm-hmm. but there is a certain, like, it's, it's much more New York city. Shut the fuck up, you know, kind of attitude in America the, of, of kind of a humility. Unlike again, it's in Australia, they cut each other down and nobody's allowed to be cool. They at do all. That, yeah. They do. yeah. I know you, yeah, I've been to your island, but we don't it's do about, that. Here. It's about knowing your place, though, right? And this, this is this is the difference between uh, the rest of the Anglosphere and America. Um, but the, the it, this incorporative ideology is a remarkable technology. But I think it's only possible because America is a, an explicitly propositional nation. And You're so, right. I what, agree. What, but what I'm what I mean then is. Essentially, America has a moral responsibility never to build a McDonald's anywhere other than America, right? Because what you're doing is you're not being 
sensitive to the fact that actually this is an intrusive cultural institution that begins to subvert and undermine other native cultures that are not based on this kind of customary sort of traditional propositionalism uh, that is not prepared to deal with it either because why would you have thought about this in any way shape or form right so it america can't help but undermine the traditions of other countries all over the world and the only reason i think that places like china are kind of immune to it is because they're essentially affected by the germans they're, no, they're, they're not occupied. immune to it by the way well, yeah, yeah, sure, but like you should go uh, and you should uh, see why they like, have any antibodies. Then is because they are in, they're currently occupied by German ideology, you know. And it's, well, it's I just, agree with the German ideology part there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, it is you know it was invented by a German, um, and so it, it's that's the only reason they can resist it in any way or or, or shape it to their own ends. Um, and so I mean they covet it and they dress yeah. like they covet it and don't know how to covet it correctly. Yeah. Um, but my, it's not as my, bad now as it's matured a little. The Nouveau Riche in China, the first times I went, hmm. I mean, it was, you know, the most garish, you know, you pick whichever brand, Gucci, I, I don't even know my brands that you're supposed to, all the big ones, right? The, the, they're obnoxious symbols, the G's and the D's and the things and the whatever. We're not supposed to mention the Balenciaga one anymore. Um Every piece of, piece of clothing on a person was a different one of them with the brand logo as large as it can possibly right, be. Yeah. It's like yeah. a guy wearing a, a jacket that's a, it's a giant Ferrari with like Lamborghini pants, uh-huh. like to show off how he's part of all the big expensive brands. And like everybody was like that. Yeah. And um, yeah. it's toned down now. I mean, just the most obnoxious kind of, and it, it was a phenomenon of being the, the nouveau riche phenomenon and the yeah. covetousness of, of the West. And mm-hmm. they have this weird, like exploitative mm-hmm. as uh, like mentality about it. But at the same time, they also, it's like, if you're a white American in China, they worship you and use you at the same time and hate mm-hmm. you at the same time. It's a really mm-hmm. weird phenomenon uh, no, to kind of experience. You're getting the, major positive and negative racism at the same time against you, for sure. Um, yeah, my, my sister worked in South Korea for a while, and uh, she had a friend over there who he had a beard, and Koreans would just come up to him in the street and just touch his face. And I, yeah, that's happened to me in China. Yeah, and I was yeah. just like, that is horrific. You know, I can't imagine strangers just coming up and touching my face. No, come up with a cell phone right in your face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't all even kinds imagine. of really strange but, things. I mean, and then, I... I well, on the more fun side, thing, like pretty girls will just run up to you and take selfies with you well, for no good, reason. Yeah. But 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 this but this is what I mean when it, essentially we have to make the Americans understand they are parochial, and their view of mankind as universal is tied to the liberalism, and it's okay. also damaging other cultures. Right. But I don't. Because, I don't. I, as in maybe it's my Americanness. I don't. I just don't see a problem. Well, with that. There, there's well, there's it, the there flip side it, with wokeness. That, no, no, it, that, no, no. That is. Of course you don't, because it's what you're used to. It's what you are familiar sure. with. It's what you expect, right? But I'm, I've, this, this is what the return guys are talking about, but uh, not articulating it well enough. Uh, it's, it's this kind of cultural imperialism that seems justified when you say, well, we have a better culture, but you've got to remember that everyone thinks they have a better culture. And what you really have is just more power. Right. Because if it was the other way, they'd be like, well, my Latvian culture is just better than your American culture. That's why I get to impose it on you. And so it's actually not sentimental in any way. It's actually now rationalistic. And actually, 
the way that the the European powers have been have forced us into sentimental relationships with one another because of the lack of over single power domination of the continent. Actually, if you look at the European nations, they're all roughly the same size. You know, they're at least all comparable. Um, and so it's kind of forced us to have some form of respect for that other culture that we don't. And so we, we've got uh, a saying in, in England is when in Rome, you do as the Romans do. Uh, but that's not something Americans believe. And it's destroying civilizations. Uh, and so it's this, but I genuinely think it's tied to the, the American liberal experience of the world thinking of themselves as universal men and anyone can come in and be an American. And actually, no, I don't really think that's true. And also I think that that concept is being exported in a damaging way to other people. And so I think that, I think a lot of it is why there's a fundamental resentment against America. Cause like, be I true. like, I like loads of Americans. I like loads of Americans, but also I can see why a lot of people don't like Americans, you know? And so, but I mean, it's probably because I'm English and therefore we've got very, very, very almost harmonious values and sense of humor. And I'm used to American culture. And so, yeah, I get along really great with Americans, but I do understand the complaints against America. And I, I think that those vaguely sympathetic, those complaints are actually working themselves out within America when we have um, the uh, democratic establishment, the deep state, whatever it is, they think yeah. that they're superior, that their values are universal, and they despise the parochial Americans. Hmm. And and but they're, that's the they're, they're worlds apart. Americans. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 I, so and, and, and one of the, the tensions parochial... between the left and the right in our country, which we project yeah. onto the world, is that universalizing, all-consuming, bureaucratic mindset, and then hmm. this like localized red state-ish more rural uh, uniqueness um, that, that, that you are explaining as yeah. America at, at large is doing to the rest of the world. No, the, the, and this is why I'm so totally in support of like the MAGA movement, you know, not so much Trump himself, but the people that he is representing. These are the sort of people that in Europe, I would recognize as just my countrymen, you know, they're just my fellow Englishmen, my, right? and, and this, right. this is, and the, these are the people that I don't want to see the left destroy. You know, the left will destroy this unique traditional culture. And that's what it is. And that's what we have in Europe. And so it, we have to get out of the mindset of rationalistic universalism to be able to appreciate that, that, that that's there. Now, that's not to undo any of what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, because honestly, sure. I agreed with almost all of it. I think we, you'll agree we, with the next thing I'll say, but carry on. Okay. Um, we, we need to be able to have a rational perspective on the world, obviously. Um, but I think that should include the appreciation for the native traditional cultures that we have. See, so I don't think that the left has a rational universalist perspective whatsoever. I think they have a Gnostic universalist perspective, which is they know better and everybody has to be that. And I don't feel like that's actually fundamentally American at all. I don't think Americans no, it's not. It's at German. all think. Yeah, it is German. That's yeah. right. It's they, a, have yeah, system, yeah, we, yeah. they have a systematic philosophy. That's why they shouldn't yeah. be heads of states uh, ever. You can go to your grave. I'll go with you. Maybe not to yeah. your grave, but in agreement. It'll be a group you, grave, I'm sure. We can, we can we're Thelma all going to die Louise. on some hill sometime. Aren't we? <laughs> we can, yeah. yeah, we can Thelma and Louise right off the side of that one together, yeah. holding hands, yeah. the whole thing. Uh, but it is. That's a, but that's. And again, this is that Swabian pietist thing, because it so informs what we see as German mm. philosophy, because the German systematic philosophies grew largely out of that, which was a Gnostic 
kind of attempt to fuse Gnosticism and the kind of emerging Enlightenment science and the emerging Enlightenment philosophy in the German context. Uh, so I, I hear what you're saying. I think that these things should be allowed to play out organically. Um, if that, I don't think that destroys, it does damage or transform or change traditional cultures, but I don't think it destroys societies or even cultures. I think it allows them to change with time. And in, if you want to be contingent about it with the contingent circumstances of that, they find themselves in the times and places and, and communication modes that they have. That's not a problem, but it's when you have this imperialistic that I have a problem sorry. with. So let me stop you there because th this again feels like a, an opinion that is centered in the sort of rational liberal perspective. Um, and, it, and I'm not trying to just constantly like pull you up on it, but traditional cultures do change over time. Uh, the mm -hmm. great example of that was Queen Elizabeth's funeral, where you could see traditional uniforms and costumes from each era of Britain's history, uh, marching in procession you know it's kind of preposterous in a way but it's also a testament to what we have been through as a country uh, and so the it's not that traditional cultures don't change the problem is that the american rationalism that i agree is infected with german gnosticism i totally agree but this is being exported around the world and it's kind of liquefying these cultures so it becomes impossible to have a true and sincere commitment to the traditional way of life in that place and so i think actually it is a problem and it is kind of anti-human because at least what we one thing we can say about the traditional cultures is they're authentically human they're just that kind of human that kind of human. there are lots of kinds of human but it's you know authentically a human experience that yeah, the americans where i don't project... go with you um okay. and and so which is fine we don't mm. have to agree, obviously, but I, this is where I don't I don't go with you. Um, mm. And I, I I just impressed that I, I again, there's, we can call it the English side and the German side or whatever we want to call it. Mm. But this difference, uh, the, the Gnostic aspect is not necessarily woven thoroughly through what it means to be American or liberal. It is a thing that has grown up with it and mm is parasitic upon it. And I think that our, our values of universalism, as we were talking about earlier, uh, created an opening by which say through critical race theory and uh, the perversion, the, the, the literally Marxist perversions of civil rights, um, that have created well, this kind of monstrosity. We, of we, I think that we can make it very evident, um, that this German idealism or this Gnosticism by asking, where does it propagate? Where does it scale? It scales within bureaucracies specifically, which yes. means corporations, which means, you know, nominally efficient systems. And it propagates in media, it propagates in um, colleges, too. And if we see that wherever these ideas are transmitted, they're probably transmitted through business, through forms of business, through forms of interaction in a culture. And what they blend, it is a type of person. The, the, uh, the, the cubicled man is a type of person. It's not it's not not a type of person, but he's thinking in a universalized form. He's thinking in terms of bureaucracies, th thinking in terms of uh, what, what did you guys say? Abstractions by, by just chopping people down into little functionary, but fungible. He, he thinks of uh, he just thinks in that way. And that way of thinking is, it, again, it's very good at doing certain things. 
um, but it also propagates. Um, I think Carl's critique is that it it puts every individual into a blender and, and it, it erodes societies. Mm. But when we go back to the question that you posed at the beginning, James, about there's this beast that we have to defeat. If we if you do want to tie it to Gnosticism and then see where Gnosticism propagates through the systems or the cultures, um, then we can see how to create cultures or systems, corporations, and states that are immune to it that still have the same kind of functionality, that still train people, that still inform people, and that still rule people, but are still immune to that, whatever this mind virus is. I mean, it, it, it attaches to centralization of power and monopoly is what it attaches to extraordinarily efficiently. Yeah. And so whatever you're looking forward to, and, and I actually think that one of the reasons besides this kind of civil right parasitism that we cannot ignore, it, it cannibalized civil rights movements from within, became very strong and emerged as kind of a destructive dragon that's burning down societies. The woke problem, I mean, specifically with the identity politics, what I've referred to as identity Marxism hmm. more specifically. Um, it, it it cannibalizes or it attaches to, I should say, to, to centralized power and monopoly. So we have to be thinking in terms of, I think that other than just that, what, what's where I was going with it, sorry. Um, I think that one of the main things that has happened is that because of the rapid changes that came, structurally speaking, in every culture, this is not even a cultural argument, due to the rapid transformation of technological uh, communications technology in particular, um, but also, so that's big tech basically, but also financial technology. These two sectors of the economy rapidly changed, rapidly gained the kind of monopolistic power um, because they were ahead of, whether it's legislation, whether it's ahead of culture, they were ahead in their developments of everything else. They gained this kind of power. I was thinking about this yesterday, that it's the kind of power that cor that, that, that corrupt or, or evil governments covet. Or maybe we should just be more realistic and say that all governments covet. They, cover, they covet the kind of power that the tech industry and the financial industry were able to accrue over the past 20 years due to technological transformation um, that we haven't been able to answer yet. So, and I think, well, what does it look like going forward? I think that the, the liberal project of decentralization of power that nobody deserves political authority, so we're going to decentralize that. Nobody gets to answer questions as the final say. Well, this is just how we do shit around here. Nope, we're going to ask the question. I think that while that does have a corrosive or a subversive or a um, uh, you know acidic dissolving kind of effect or can, it also prevents the ability for this thing to take over. But the reason that it was able to take over was because new technologies emerged I think, that... I think I've hit it. I think I've hit it. You are right. There is a parasite. Um, you are absolutely right. Because the 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 distinction, I think, is, should be made between English and French liberalism. Uh, because English liberalism is built on negative rights, of course. Yes. Uh, what the king can't do to you. And this, of course, comes from the medieval tradition of essentially the Anglo-Saxons fighting against the Norman occupiers. Um, and that's, it manifests explicitly in negative rights. Uh, however, the French view of liberalism, as 
we know as Rousseau, uh, manifests in a series of positive rights. In fact, it's almost an entirely positive, positivistic doctrine when you get down to the base of it. Uh, as Rousseau, uh, I mean, you can literally see this in the formulation between Locke and Rousseau, whereas Locke thought we sacrificed a, a portion of our natural rights to protect the rest through the creation of a government, which of course then is subject to negative uh, behaviors, uh, negative re restraints. Uh, Rousseau believed we exchanged our natural rights for civil rights. And that's a positive uh, perspective right, on right, rights right. rather than a negative one. And that strikes me as the parasite itself. That is. The, problem, right. the problem, though, is that that really inflames 20th century civil rights doctrines because essentially the Civil Rights Act would have to be one of those key points where you point to and say, look, that's the parasite. It has to be um, grounded back in the very English declaration that Thomas Jefferson wrote down and following Locke, of course, and then tried to live up to and failed that they, they exploit. It has to be grounded correctly. I think this is where, mm -hmm. not that I'm a huge fan of Caldwell's book, The Age of Entitlement. I, I do like it. I think it's an important book. But where you actually see with the civil rights movement that there was this split. And in effect, the problem mm -hmm. in the United States is we have two constitutional orders right now, mm -hmm. two fundamentally mm -hmm. different, irreconcilable mm -hmm. constitutional orders. Mm -hmm. One of them is, in fact, an entitlement state that is this French yeah. enlightenment or French liberal the positivistic thing. State. And I don't think that – I don't know about the Civil Rights Act themselves, but the judicial interpretation of those that followed very rapidly, the enactment of the Great Society with Johnson and going forward, these things explicitly took the path that he's, he's outlining as the Asian entitlement. And these things explicitly became the pathway by which the woke virus was able to start to cannibalize the liberal tradition. And I think that this is absolutely crucial for us to understand and to start unwinding because now when we understand it this way – we have mm -hmm. one massive advantage. Not only do we get conceptual clarity, we can start to identify unique judicial decisions that took us down the wrong road, mm -hmm. which means that those judicial decisions can can be brought to review. Yeah, I, we just had the huge thing Roe with Roe v. Wade, Wade but yeah. Yeah. you start looking at things like in universities, Backey versus uh, uh, what was it? The, is that the universe? Is that the Regents of the University of California? You start looking at that. You start looking in employment, like Duke's for, Duke versus Griggs Power. Um, I think that's what that's called. You start looking at those. There's there's a handful of these cases, like kind of landmark cases. You can figure out which ones they are because the, the critical racers point to them like obsessively. Yeah. Yeah. And you can figure out which ones they were that took us down this path. And then those going under judicial review can actually mm -hmm. take not the Civil Rights Act necessarily themselves, which could be rooted in our 14th Amendment, which can be rooted back to the Declaration of Independence. But all of the judicial interpretation that came after those that created this second constitutional order that were this parasitic constitu mm. pseudo constitutional order that we that we go under where we are now reinterpreting what the Constitution was intended to mean or what what law is intended to what the civil rights laws are intended to say mm. um in particular, here's one of the little manipulations, protected class. So yeah. civil rights law says yeah. that race, for example, is a protected class. That's not the same thing as saying certain races are protected classes of individuals, right? That's a completely different conception of what a protected yeah. class means. And I think when, the, when we the big, the disentangle is, these, we actually can find a path out of this through yeah. means while post-liberal cultural um, renewal may be a valuable project.
Hmm. We can find ways that are strictly within the liberal legal tradition to unwind this mess where, again, like we said earlier, yeah. nobody has to become a revolutionary to get yes. out of this. Yeah. No, I, I, so th- this this I think is um, best exemplified in the bake the cake controversy, right? Because yes, yes, yes. yes. Th- th- this seems to me to be the perfect example that the the state is going to force someone to bake a cake against their will uh, because it would be discriminatory for them not to. Um, that's the, the the it's such a perfect exemplification of positive rights in action. I get to force you to do something, or else, right? That's the the that's the total inversion of the english liberal tradition that what i consider to be the proper liberal tradition like we were trying to think of you see that in the conversion therapy bills too where they took the concept of forcing somebody to change their sexuality being wrong to questioning somebody's gender identity to be wrong right yes Yes. like this but the thing is this what this means is that you will be opening up a space where it will be allowable for people to be bigoted right because it will be that right you can't tell them not to be but of course um it will also mean that you don't have the parasite saying right now i've been given license to force you to do these things why can't i just use this license to force you to do a whole bunch of other things as well um, correct you know and the the this is when did it become the government's job to rid the world of bigotry like well that's like, that approximately, 19, right. <laughs> approximately 1968 thank you for yeah. asking yeah. yes that's exactly that's the positive right that's and that is the parasite that gives itself totalitarian license over society actually i'm, I'm glad we've we've hammered on this actually um but i mean it does mean you will find you know a, a, a shop with a nazi sign yeah, but who cares like well, who cares care. I'm totally liberal about that. You know, it's like, I know, I'm not going to shop there, you know, and uh, like, I actually am persuaded by the capitalist arguments on that. It's like, no one's going to shop there. And, yeah. but this, the, and this, in fact, ties nicely into my theory of social moral sentiments, which is people in the community will exert their own kind of moral pressure on that person. They'll be like, oh, you're the guy with the Nazi sign. Actually, I'm not going to shop. What a piece of shit you are, you know, piss off. I'm going in just any other shop that doesn't say no blacks or no Irish, you know, on it. And so you, I do think you will get this kind of moral corrective measure. No Irish. Is that a thing where, where you're from? Do you, do you guys it was have a thing uh, where you came from? That was a thing where we are. Okay. Yeah. You guys don't have like pro Irish uh, legislation in the sixties coming down where you guys are forced to no. adore them. Okay. No. No, no. That was don't you. start potato explaining. No, there, no Irish was assigned. That was an American. Yeah, I know. Thing. That was totally American. I know. Maybe we should have stuck with the no German. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, but but the point is, they should have just put that on the Capitol and left it there. But but did it, did it have to be legislated that the no Irish signs were taken down, or did they just fall out of favor? That you know, that's that's the perennial question. I mean, that literally is the question at the heart of what was going on with the Civil War. So I don't know that we're about to answer that one. Right, um, <laughs> I, I just don't know. know. Well, it, it takes a certain amount of humility to. Uh, well, I, I guess it takes a certain amount of hubris to try to shape culture to say we our culture are we are no longer going to uh, behave in this manner. And maybe sometimes that's a good thing where you force people to behave differently. Maybe there are good well, uses to put that. But once you give that power. This is an old kind of tired area. Once you give that power to the government, then they can do that. And they actually have to do that indefinitely to maintain their cutting edge power. And that's why you have the civil rights going all the way down into, Mm. for some reason, children being exposed to grown men and uh, women face, right? Uh, Yes. It's progressive in that direction. But 
this this is this is the point though like i i agree that it would be far better to have a system purely of negative rights and that would be not only sustainable i don't think that would actually have an acidic effect either um because it would be tolerant of things that you didn't like you know you you'd have to be like well look that's just the way they do things you'd effectively arrive at the when in rome do as the romans do perspective you know you let them do what their thing and you know you might not agree but then it's then it's a social issue so then it's for all of us to have a conversation about say well look actually why are you saying that black people can't come in your shop that's awful you know how you know what a what an awfully stigmatizing thing to do that would be you know and so we can agree that that would be a terrible thing to do without having the state uh essentially and uh, the ben shapiro at gunpoint i mean technically yes you know hmm. it's a bit hyperbolic but yes technically uh you got to go through a lot of dorks to get to the gun yeah i know i know you <laughs> really are more yeah, acceptable i, hate it it of, I guess they're more like, functionaries than dorks but i just hate it when he compresses down everything into right now to gun it's like oh come on ben you know come on you know it, it's it's an extreme way of framing it but um but then but then we're into the realm of being human, right? Then we're into the realm of consideration and empathy yeah. and dealing with each other like human beings rather than having a bureaucrat telling you what you have to do. Um, so, you know, that's that's my view, I suppose. I, I don't think I disagree with that at all. Right. That was an amazing conversation. I have to get off to work. That's why I'm wrapping it up. And I'm sure that yeah. you guys need to do other things. But thank you both. Go for to the bathroom blowing my mind and yeah. stretching my bladder. That was fascinating. Yeah, mine too. So um, I'll link links to your work in the description, but uh, James got new discourses and uh, Sargon runs Lotus Eaters. You also have YouTube, both have YouTube channels, uh, which are fascinating work. So Yeah, they're good ones. No, they're great. If we do say so ourselves. <laughs> <All right. laughs>